from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Philadelphia, West Philadelphia that is, Huntsman Hall, Locust Walk, on a beautiful February morning. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're here two hours every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some combination of us are anyway. This morning, at the moment, it may change, but at the moment, this is Kate Massey hosting with my buddies, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Audie Weiner's probably going to roll in here in a few minutes. He's got some early morning responsibilities, but it may just be us three. Some of us are here every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics. You can join the conversation. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a ring. one 844 Wharton. That's one 942 7866 Matt Johnson, our producer, is here. He's out of bed. He's awake, sipping on some coffee, available for your phone calls. You can also email him, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Emails are an especially great way to catch us if you're listening one of the five times that we're replayed between now and next Wednesday. So you can drop us an email. We'll take it. We even take one live if you'd rather write than call. That you're free to do that. So uh, we, we're together. A few of us are together for the first time in a week. What has caught your eye, gentlemen, around the world of sports in the last week? Well, I was just the first thing that caught my eye, which was obviously a very historic event, which I'm not sure has gotten as much press as it deserves. You do have to talk about the Super Bowl? No, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that. But I will. T- but yes, because I really feel but like I it will. Has not I will segue. I will segue to the undercovered. I will segue to the Super Bowl as a result of it. Okay. The Connecticut women's basketball team has won 100 consecutive games. Now, the statistical point I wanted to bring up about this, and it does sort of relate to the Super Bowl, is at some point, this is going to sound maybe strange to the non-statisticians out there, but I think it's true. At some point, by Connecticut keep winning, it diminishes the record. Now, let me say what I mean by that. If they keep winning, it's clear to me that either they're much greater than everybody else, which is one possibility, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that could also be confounded with maybe we're in a lull in women's basketball and yeah. they have got no real competition. So is there a point where winning, continuous winning, actually diminishes Certainly. our perception of how good I mean, you well, are? Look at how Serena Williams' career is perceived. Do we, do we, we talk about Serena Williams being one of the best tennis players of all time, probably the best women's tennis player of all time, but then we automatically go, but she played in an era mm-hmm. where she did not face adequate competition. But of course, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing, because did she not face, you know, by dominating that competition, does that competition just not look as good in our eyes? Right. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is, in some sense, this is why you need, you know, you've studied some of the work, um, I forget the guy's name out of Brigham Young that did Bridging Shane Eras Reese, in Sports. Shane, Shane Reese. Reese and, yeah. Uh, to bridge Scott eras, Perry. Right. To Brit, thank you. The, to bridge eras in sports, same thing in testing when I worked at ETS, to say, you know, Cade took one v- version of the SAT, I took a different one. Well, we need overlapping test items, so we have a way to compare. Or we need outside tests that says, you took also the AP math, I took it, we can compare based on that. That's the beauty of sports, at least. The hope is that there are overlapping eras mm-hmm. in sports which allow us to compare. So you say Serena Williams. Well, she did play against, you know, early on in her career, there was, some, you know, Justin NN and other people yep. like that. And those people played against Groff and those people played against. So the hope is that these overlapping eras allow us to compare. But I was just thinking this morning, yeah. as Connecticut continues to win, it makes me wonder, 
maybe women's basketball, the rest of the teams are so bad. I don't mean they're bad. So why, but I just why mean would in it comparison. be? What's, what, what is some theory for why the competition would be low in women's basketball? Okay, so you know, I'd like to distribution little, of talent, well, really, right? So that, one, but, no, no. But I would think it would. I would think the popularity of women's basketball, which has grown, would make more women choose to go into basketball. So I would think the population would be larger. So I ask you as a people analytics person who runs one of the people that runs our center, I would think as Connecticut gets more famous and more likely to win, the better talent is more likely to want to work for the winning team. And therefore, it's harder for the losing teams, not the top company. I'm using business language. We're a business show, too. Does the top company get a right. higher chance of getting all the best talent, and therefore it's harder for anybody to compete? In other words, it's the winner's, the winner's, not the winner's curse, it's what we call double jeopardy in marketing. It's hard to catch the market leader because the market leader gets more attention. So that's my theory, is that Connecticut... So does it depend, does it depend on, as the, as the population that's interested in playing women's basketball grows, uh, what's the, what's the, what's the the growth in the average player versus the growth in the best player? Exactly. we know Connecticut's going to get the best. And so if, as the population grows, it pulls in more of the best, then UConn's going to disproportionately be advantaged. Just, just to, for our listeners out there, the picture I have in my mind, since we're on the radio, is like, I'm thinking of a normal distribution, and what Cade's talking about is the far right tail is going to Connecticut. But... That has to remain thin, because if that tail it gets really thick, then the other schools will also get players out there, and things would be more competitive. So I agree with you. It's I think the average is going up, but Connecticut is getting disproportionately. And the number of all-star players, it is it's, borne it's, out in the it's data. Kind of a counter, you, you, it's a counterintuitive result from an expanding pool, right? You, well, right. The, the, but, the, but intu- main, the intuition is that as the pool expands, main, that, main, that other schools have something to draw. But, but your, point, sorry, your point's more subtle, though, It's which is great. I mean... Where does the pool expand? Is yeah. it expanding yeah. at the 75th percentile, yeah. or is it expanding at the 95th percentile? Well, I mean, so there might be something structural to why you might maintain thin tails in the in the ability pool, even as the population expands. What's the average height of a woman's basketball player, college women's basketball player? I would, I'm just guessing. I, I would say it's probably somewhere in the six foot to six foot yeah, two I range. Would, I would so do you, do you, do you, okay. I was thinking it was probably higher. I mean, my, my hypothesis, one hypothesis could be that, that that is far enough out in the tails of the overall women's population relative to men's. Like, that the, the, the actual pool of people who can play women's basketball because of essentially a height requirement or a height constraint is, is, is maintained sort of permanently low. Either way, but maybe I, it's not the case. I it was know. just something that caught my eye in sports, and I started to wonder. You know, yeah. maybe worth- winning makes you make you know makes our estimate of how great you are lower. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit like burying the lead. I mean, let's let's take a moment and celebrate the achievement, right? I mean, a yeah. hundred wins yeah. in a row is ridiculous. How, right, this is more than three years. Correct, but right? I, 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 I guarantee people will do what Eric is sort of hypothesizing. They will look back and say, "Oh well, it that happened. That happened to be a weak era for basketball." And I mean, it's so, almost by definition. Going to be a weak era for basketball because they've dominated so, so much. Shane, you gave a, an, an example from another sport, yes, with Serena, and women's tennis. What is an example from the men's side from any sport where the Tiger the, Woods? So, the, just to round out the oh, questions, sorry. like where, where yeah. do we? There's a little suspicion about the accomplishment because of the weakness of the competition. 
And you're going to go, it's, it's, it's interesting you go with Tiger Woods because the, that's never the attribution. The attribution is always how extraordinary he was. And he was extraordinary, but I think people... You think that was a weak era? And one, I don't it, think it was a weak era. I think that, you know, I think people will talk about it like that. What, what is true is the Tiger Woods phenomenon mm-hmm. increased the competition in subsequent years. And so I yes. think there's no question that yes. the competition was weaker in his era than immediately after precisely because of him. And so maybe a better analogy would be maybe some of those like Yankees areas when they won like like the you know whatever Yankees eras the 30s when they basically won every World Series. Everybody looks back in that and be like, "Well, that's a cr- an amazing achievement. Those were clearly great teams, but there was a lot of structural things about baseball that almost may- guaranteed that they would be incredibly strong and the other teams would be weak in that era. Well, the part that's structural, what you're talking about, is there actually are only four majors a year. So, you know, if you take, let's say Tiger Woods was great for, I'm just saying, rounding 10 years. Okay. Okay? So there are only 40 majors that anybody could have won. Right. Okay? He won 14. All right, so that only leaves 26 other majors for the other players. So at some point, by definition, by the structure of it, when yeah. somebody wins, somebody else has just, to lose. And yeah. you, it's a finite numbers game. Like, yeah. No one says, well, Michael Phelps, he, he swam in a weak era. Well, first, the good news, let me just say the one thing. There's an objective standard. It's called the clock. Yeah, was, and so in, we in know swimming, how swimming, fast right. he mm-hmm. swam. Yep. Number two, um, by definition, when he won the golds, it means nobody else could have won them. So it's not like, you know, in other words, there's only one gold to give out, and it's once every four years yeah. in certain sports. So in some sense, that's also the beauty of sports with clocks, is that I'd have to say you can compare. I'm not saying it should be, but, I mean, we can compare the best mile run now. We can compare yeah. Michael Phelps and, 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 and the 100. And, 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 for, things that, for, for sports that aren't inherently head-to-head. Or team-based, exactly. that, that you have a more objective measure. And to a certain extent, maybe this is what saves Tiger from this comparison, is that we have objective, you know, we, we can look at courses like, you know, Augusta National or Pebble Beach and say what he did in 19-whatever, 1990. It's a little slippery because they do change They the do course. change the in course. Fact, again, it's, in fact, it's because of Tiger Woods that some of these woods got us, that some of these courses got as changed as they did. Yeah, and I mean, like, Tiger Woods, I think, will not probably be in this category just because he, he is, again, one of these people that kind of changed the sport. Yeah, with his with yeah. his dominance. Yeah. So um, related, whereas I doubt I, maybe UConn will they'll say the same thing about. So that. So somewhat related. I wanted to ask uh, both you guys more of a statistics, but it's related to basketball again. So we also have an undefeated men's team, Gonzaga, right now. Okay. It's the only team that's undefeated. Okay. Now they only have about three or four games left in the regular season. Then of course comes their their conference tournament, and then the so a lot of teams, a lot of people already start saying, what's the chances they're going to win each game, and then they just multiply them together. To come up with an overall probability Man, of an... You hear the scoffing on independence? Wow, that was... I'm scoffing on independence. Oh, just a very, very, very... No, no, but back to the... A Shane, very subtle dismissive no, but, tone there. But back to the Shane Jensen theory of, you know, all playoff games are 50-50. Independence is a strong straw man. In yeah. other words, to, to defeat the concept of independence, mm-hmm. you better have an alternative theory about and it's, what... And, it, and it's actually very hard to fit a non-independence. Like, if you were to actually try and build the that into your modeling, modeling, it's not... Is, it's, it's really not... What, Easy. What? What? Where is the lack of independence? Why? Why are you so? Why are you scoffing at independence when people do this to Gonzaga's? 
probability. Okay, so this is where you guys, this is where the mass, it's good that Adi Weiner sat down because this is when the massive, Adi, ridi- the massive, the massive ridicule is going to start coming. <laughs> I'm not going to use the word momentum, but I will use the word because I've been told I'm, I'm going to use the word non-stationary. It's, t- 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 it's our code. It's our code word. Yeah, so <laughs> it's our code but, uh, word. But, 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 by the way, listeners out there here on Morton Moneyball, it's one eight four four Wharton if you want to call in. But remember, when I say the word non-stationary, you know I'm saying momentum. I'm just doing it to appease these hey, Eric, three guys Eric, in here. We can hear that. I understand. You can hear it. And so can <laughs> I. Mean, I kind of already knew that. I was just going right. to let it go. But, but here's right. the form of negative, if you'd like, downward non-stationarity I'm thinking about. Eventually, the pressure of matching the 1976 Indiana team is going to start weighing on Gonzaga. Remind us about 1976. Only undefeated well, team? The, the last undefeated team in college basketball. And they went through the March Madness tournament they did. undefeated, they went, too? Entirely assume, undefeated. Because Kentucky, Knight, it Bobby was Knight. Bobby Knight. How many years was he? He must have been relatively young, no? He w- he's probably eighty now, so forty-one years ago he was probably forty. Okay, he was probably about, okay. he was probably forty at the time. Um, but again, Kentucky recently went undefeated up to the national semifinal mm-hmm. game, but lost to Wisconsin yep. in the national semifinal Even game. Even I remember that team. UNLV was undefeated one year. They lost to Duke in the finals, and they were the defending national champion that year. But no one's gone undefeated since nineteen seventy-six. So my thought was, at some point. People are going to start. Let's assume they go into the tournament undefeated. At some point, I don't want to call it the pressure, but the the, all the commentary around undefeatedness has to play a role, and that's why I think independence wouldn't hold. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, there. I mean, I I mean, I think that argument especially would apply at something like college basketball, where you know these are very, you know. by almost by construction, these are athletes that are relatively inexperienced on that national stage. They're kids, and, and yeah, are more susceptible They're to pressure. Students. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you guys have no problem with the lack of independence. As you're getting closer to the goal, the likelihood of them playing, as according to their natural latent ability of this team, yeah. is likely. I, I don't, I don't I think there's a lot of down. quantitative support for it, but I certainly buy into the f- concept of pressure of, of, of this type having a negative, an adverse effect. It's interesting on because it, you, you far more often hear the argument for positive momentum than negative yeah. momentum. You're basically arguing negative momentum, which when, right. when you put these things together is a good argument for just going with independence and and, and no momentum in either direction. Well, one of the psychological... That's certainly where you want to start. I don't that's think a, you've that's got... That's a more parsimonious yeah. I, I certainly don't think you'd get like, you know, I mean, Audi often sort of puts these things in the term of like whether or not you'd be able to get kind of gambling juice out of this yeah. or not, right? And I don't think you'd get enough... Gambling juice out of like any right. kind of mo- effect of non stationarity or momentum yeah. or whatever you'd and like what, to call it, um, to like go, you, you know, you, you'd want to still bet based on the independence. But I think model. We'll, we'll, we'll piggybacking what, on what, what Cade said is there are some people who do badly under pressure, and there's actually a whole bunch of people who do really well under it. Mm-hmm. And they probably balance out in some ways. I mean, listen, to even get to that, that, that arena, they're all, they are only in college, but they've already had to go through so many obstacles. This but is a, be, an elite but, slice but, of the pie. But Can Eric, we come up Eric's, with any examples of people who do particularly well over <laughs> pressure? Like contemporary, <laughs> contemporary examples? How long would it take before we got in football? No. I can't think, I can't think of any. I could have gone with Big Poppy, too. I mean, we didn't have to go football. <laughs> you missed last week, Eric. I understand. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a I'm obsessed. I need an intervention, actually. I honestly have done nothing. Do you have an injection? I'm listening to like every football podcast that's out there. I'm reading about... like. Third round draft. I mean, I I need an intervention, guys. So th- I'm this, about to give you one. This this, <laughs> this is Wharton Moneyball. If you feel like providing Shane Jensen an intervention, give us a ring. One eight four four. Tell me something Wharton. to be excited about in February, other than so pictures and catchers struck, report. I'm, no, that is true. <laughs> I'm struck by. 
I mean, I would think that the Red Sox fans would be over it in some sense. I mean, you've had like 14, and and if you follow the other sports in New England, then I mean, you're just you're like drowning in championships, and yet you're still walking on. The yeah. Clouds yeah. This morning. Yeah. This I, mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, if you guys really want to get into it, I mean, I will tell <laughs> no. you why this is a particularly unique Go. thing. I mean, Go, there's Shane. well, top top five. I mean, a it's it obviously solidified uh, the, them as probably. Certainly, unambiguously, Tom Brady, greatest quarterback of all time. Unambiguously, Bill Belichick. Come on in here. I just want to take them one by one. I didn't even get through one. No, no. That was two. That was two. That was two. That was Brady and Belichick. That was all part of one. That was one A and one B. No. So let's go. So here's what I will certainly agree with. It was under that amount of pressure, under that scenario... That was the greatest comeback in any football game I've ever seen. From a, I mean, there were, they've done an analysis. You looked at 538. Maybe yeah. you guys talked about this. The number of times where Atlanta was over a 95% favorite to win the game was the highest of any game where someone ever came back. Yeah. So, but just in, that's just in football. In football. I'm sorry. In football. Okay. Okay. In football. Because, I mean, I would make an assertion like it was the greatest com- single game comeback in sports <laughs> history, but then we'd have to start. That would be yeah, a hard comparison. I don't know. And I don't know here's, if that's Here's true. my greatest well, ever. This is the most hyperbolic no. of any hyperbole of all Well, no, time. no. I mean, I, I, did, I, did, I, I, did, I did I did, constrain it. It was the greatest single-game comeback in sports history because we all know what the greatest multiple-game comeback yes. in sports yes. history yes. is. Yes, too, we do. I mean, right? Yes, we do. Uh, so, yeah, it was... Yes, we do. Turns and out, just same city. Yeah, I, we get it. But, just as, but let me get to your yeah. important thing. This is where a, a difference of the number one makes a monumental difference. And here's what I mean. If Atlanta had won the Super Bowl... And Tom Brady's four and three in the Super Bowl. The monumental difference in history yeah, between yeah. that and five and two is it's almost infinity. That would actually be point number two. Is it really changed the narrative but, uh, on how we view Brady? But that's, it the did. problem with this is, as a scientist, we look. I would look at this and say if. The Falcons had been even a, just a minuscule more intelligent. Correct, like than kicking a field goal, kick, kicking a field goal, running, running the, the ball, a few running times. off the clock, yeah. anything. I mean, yeah. it's as if I mean, again, one of the themes we have. Do on you this want to talk about the Seattle well, Super I mean, they, Bowl they, the same yeah. way? They no, had we, fifty-one we, seconds on the clock. Have, but, they had a little. Listen, one of the, we have themes. Eric has his stationary, and I have my my large deviations analysis. And and in order tell, for tell, no, tell, remind just to remind you what that is is that when when extraordinarily unlikely events occur, it's not because of one single factor it's because of the accumulation of small factors and there's a tendency for the for the young gentleman on my left here to think That'd of it shame. all That'd be shame. that would be Shane as all being the the, the supremacy of Tom Brady and the no. and his <laughs> it's also Belichick it's also Belichick. <laughs> also Belichick and not to realize that that comeback didn't happen without and the bad play calling of Dan bad, Quinn bad, and the, bad, and the bad, bad choices and, by Matt Ryan and, and absurdly insane lucky catches lucky catches by by Edelman but and a whole bunch of other things that all kind of had to go th- together to make that happen. When Eric, what you pointed out, and I think this is lovely, is that is that one of those things doesn't go, and they're four and three, and he's no longer the greatest quarterback. I mean, how can that be? How can the how can the, the decision on who's I'll the greatest why. quarterback and, and, and rest on, fact, on that? that I mean, yeah, that's a great point. I, yeah. I mean, of course, I I mean, this is why as a pastor, I mean, I. I know for a fact, regardless of the outcome of that game, that he is the greatest quarterback of all time. I just I'm pleased that that game basically removed any controversy about it. There's there's no barroom argument you can now have where he's not it doesn't end up being had, the greatest had, quarterback had, of all I had, time. I had a guy tweet at me because I announced somewhere that we were doing something. Maybe it was in response to our show last week, and this fellow tweeted say, "Well, Bradshaw won four without without helmet <laughs> Bradshaw. Ra- without, without helmet radios." Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, all he had was 10 other yeah. Hall of Famers that played with him. That's, <laughs> That's all, all he had for every one of those games. Yeah. That's all Bradshaw had. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the greatest defense maybe in the history of the NFL. But and th- two Hall of Fame wide receivers and a Hall of Famer running back. And we don't have and half the guy in his and, line. And, 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 and Eric, no structural but, things pushing but, things but forward. But Eric, uh, I love that you brought, you brought up Hall of Fame because one of the things that, that, that occurred to me and we were discussing it when we were talking about the the uh, Football Hall of Fame when we were in Houston is, I, is the Hall of Fame for football seems to implicitly and, and naturally include playoffs as just part of Agreed. your career. Mm-hmm. Yep. But in, in, say, baseball, we don't think of it as something that, that, that matters. It matters oh, a little I bit. Think no, it no, does. No, but we tend to look at your career performances, yep. of which playoffs tend to be a, a rather small fraction, except with a couple of exceptions. And we just don't tend to think about it. And we're, the, the debate's going to happen in how many years, five years, when, when Ortiz comes yep. up. And we're going to say, look at the, the, the numbers as a career. They're, they're, they're DH. They're great numbers. But... Um, we'll start talking about it, but if you throw in the the performance in the in the playoffs, you'd be like it's a no brainer. Well, maybe. Well, well maybe- I mean, I, I think it matters the way it should matter. And ba- ba- baseball does it right in the sense that, like, um, I think it, it, it matters at the margins. You know, like I mean, because David yeah. Ortiz is a marginal candidate for right. the Hall of Fame. Yes. I mean, and so yeah, that. That could be the thing that pushed him over the top. Just like Kurt Schilling is a marginal candidate for the Hall of Fame, his playoff heroics may be the thing that pushes him over the but, top, but, but it may not. But, he may not but make Shane, it. you had five points, but let me just yeah. go back to number one. The other thing that's I like, yeah. by the way, I'm a. not a Brady. He's on A. We're not even at Belichick yet. No, I'm not you, a, you, you, you know, you I'm not a Brady two. fan, but on the other, a fan, but I am a fan of what he's accomplished. The way I viewed it to all my friends out there was there were four, his last four Super Bowls, in my view. The Patriots should be two and two. They just happened, in my view, to won the two that they were not the better team and lost the two that they yeah. were the better team. So you can give him any five you want, right. but he's got five. That's yeah. the way of it. They shouldn't have beaten the Giants, in my view. In any, in e- they should have beaten the Giants in both those Super Bowls, in my view. But they were not better than Seattle and they were not better than Atlanta. But they won. So I'm happy for Brady. But you're right. This is where those things where. I mean, if we were all statisticians and we all just cared about some latent ability, Brady was the greatest whether he won this game or lost, Mm -hmm. but that's not the way the narrative would have gone. So from that point of view, from a statistician's point of view, I'm thrilled that they won the game because he is the greatest quarterback of all time. And by the way, when he wins number six or seven, by the way, which there's no reason (laughs) Ah, to believe he can. Do you want to forecast on that one? I mean... Well, that, that, forty so that, seems to be the magic yeah. number for football. So we'll see. What, is he to going to be the talk uh, about non-stationary? That has to well, be changing. But, yeah. Well, so it's great that Kate brought that up because also on my list was since you guys, since I've been here with you guys, we had two thirty-five-year-olds winning tennis. Yeah, I know. and so yeah. wasn't thirty the magic number for men? I mean, no one. Re- I mean, not saying no it was. one, but thirty and for women. I mean, Serena's. You know, she could win another. Those six finals or seven off the Australian majors. Open were like going back in time, like ten yeah, years. Yeah, so right? there's no reason to me to yeah. believe that Brady. And by the way, is he playing with one single Hall of Famer now? Um, did you guys have this discussion? I can't think not. of one single Hall of Famer if on Gronkowski the Patriots. has another right. two or three years. Yeah. You no, know, Gronk could be, but he wasn't there for a right. lot of this playoff run. No, that's right. The last four games of the season, the playoffs, has he playing with one Hall of Famer? One. <laughs> one. Maybe it's not a, this team. It's a great. This no. Is think the, of how great he is. He just won the Super Bowl. Without, I mean, there's nobody. I would say is even close to I the whole Malcolm Butler. Maybe Eric, was someday. No, I don't know. I just no, think you're you're going a little far on. He won. He did this. I mean, it is a system. I mean, he, he definitely is coached by a Hall of Famer. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I mean, you, well, we're, we've we're, talked about we this. want to play down yeah. the the tendency to give quarterbacks too much credit and blame. I think for that's I think that's outcome. fair. So what we'd love to do this is what I was driving this as I was driving this morning thinking about. I'd love in college basketball like we started with. I'd love to put Gino Oriema on a different team and see what happens. I'd love to have Belichick coaching one of the other teams. We did and actually see what have happens. that. We did have that. And he, you're talking about Cleveland Browns, yeah. right? Didn't go so great, but you know we can. How do you unconfound that with he was a younger coach right. then? You can't. you can't. You can't. But I'm just saying, all of these, like, it would be great to put Brady on a different team. The Jets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying, these counterfactuals are great to that. think so, about, so, but it's so, really hard. So, by the way, 538's Ben Morris took a shot at this in the past week. Mm-hmm. He took a That's shot right. at an unconfounding oh. the Belichick-Brady thing. This is great. And he worked with what little variation there is, because there is a little Very bit little. of variation. And unfortunately, I think the Browns... Uh, you know the Browns era for can Belichick. Can you explain? Really, really. Kate, why don't you explain for our listeners what you mean by little variation that remains? In order to unconfound the the Belichick effect from the Brady effect, you need time observing each of them without the other, and it, it's hard to come by when a guy's played his his entire career with Belichick. So they, you know, they use mostly they use Belichick's experience pre Brady. But they also what else did but they do? I mean, they also, there, there was, there was an almost an entire city. There was, yeah, no, no, yeah, there was almost, almost an entire season remember, where, they, uh, where Brady was injured, and the four, four games, games during year. the Flake yeah. Gate. Yeah. So there's 20 games, and if I'm correct, he, they're 14 and six in those games. And what, something what, like that. Yeah. What Morris did. Morris is like an all-time favorite of ours from 538 that we can't get to come on the show. So someone needs to put the put the pressure on Ben to come by. But he, he what he did was rank. He basically just did coach power rankings and quarterback power rankings while controlling for if you're looking at quarterbacks coaches and if you're looking at coaches quarterbacks and just ran it. And, um, you know, basically, if you look at coaches by themselves, Belichick is top. If you look at Brady by themselves, Brady is top. But when you throw them in there together, Brady remains at the top and Belichick drops down some. And he probably gets hurt probably too much. Probably because of the Cleveland stuff. By the yeah. Cleveland stuff. But the, whenever you do try to get some separation, the impact is almost entirely held, felt by Belichick. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, I also go back, I'm thinking just, you know, of the last 30 Super Bowls that have been played, um, Bill Belichick has been in nine of them, right? Because yep. they're four, or maybe more, they're four and three with the Patriots. He obviously won two with the Giants as the defensive coordinator. Was he on any of the other New England? No, he wasn't on no. the coaching staff. So he's been part of nine of 30 Super Bowls. <laughs> That's unbelievable. an Im- unbelievable yeah, amount unbelievable. of accomplishment. And, it, and, and speaking of sort of more the general view of Super Bowls, I'll just quickly mention point number three. <laughs> everybody should love the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I know you all don't, but everybody—it's uh, always an exciting game. This was literally the—this was their highest point margin of any Super Bowl that they've of won. The Brady era of the Brady era of the Brady era. Well, highest point they, they margin think, that they've won by oh, oh, an overtime overall. touchdown. That's amazing because yeah. that's this is their this is their largely largest margin, point margin. Right? Isn't they, that incredible? You're saying win or lose? No, lo- they've lost the bad ones. Certainly, Brady area. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Brady era, yes, because I think that giant the two Giants games were less than six points as well. They were. They were four point. So games. the Brady, so the Brady Belichick area, this is the largest point. How differential. are you feeling about Shane? I heard you say that before the game. We were talking in Houston, of course, about the yeah. game, and you were talking about, well, it's going to be close. It's going to be close because Pat's yeah. always play close. How are you Pat. feeling about that in the second quarter? Oh I mean, my goodness, <laughs> I did not think it was going to be close. No, I mean, I'd, lo- I mean, I, I did not think they would be able to do. How that about our forecast that they were? I was like, oh, let's just get some points. I was feeling. Bad about that yeah. earlier. Yeah. The third quarter, squeak to that one. Pe- out. People were feeling bad about. Uh, people who took the over were feeling bad. It yeah. ended up being not such a bad bet. Right, right. So, how, how do you think things shape up then for next year? I mean, what? Here's a question for you. like, what, yeah. what is watching what these guys have done? What is it? What do you think the rest of the owners are doing in the NFL? What the rest of the general managers are doing in the NFL? What do they take away from just this continued success? 
I mean, I I, th- I don't know whether they sort of... I mean, I'm sure that there's sort of lessons to be kind of picked out of, like, what how the Patriots run an organization that would be... would could be adapted to other teams and i'm sure people are trying to emulate them as much as possible but i think most people are just sort of sitting around being like we just you know <laughs> it's just all about you, you know like we it's not like we can compete with that and so i think the big question for next season but about they the clearly Patriots can the league, compete they can compete yeah. the falcons had them yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, oh, you, 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 might, you, you want to you you look at you no, want to look at what the right. Falcons have done, how they that's, built that. That's, no, that's right. And I mean, you well. can compete in a single game with the Patriots, and obviously, you can beat the Patriots in a single game. They do lose games. It's just that if you're like a Jets, you know, running the Jets organization, or you're running the Dolphins organization, you must kind of just have come to terms with like what what do we <laughs> have to thing, do to get the wild I mean, card. I mean, Kade, the other way you can think about it, which is. I think Shane's point as well is so Brady's played roughly seventeen seasons, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying he's not. Again, I'm happy to say he's the greatest of all time, but he's won five, which means somebody else has won 12. Mm -hmm. So it's not like even like in the Michael Jordan era where if he hadn't played, I think we somewhat all agree, if he hadn't gone to baseball, they may have won eight straight championships. They haven't won eight straight championships. Someone else is able to defeat them. Atlanta had Mm -hmm. them defeated. They didn't win the game. New England deserved to win the game, but Atlanta was at least a comparable team to them. So it's not like if I'm another team and I'm thinking the next 10 years, obviously Brady will be gone in 10 years, but I'm thinking, oh, there's if they just win at their historical rate, there's no Super Bowls left for me. No, there's about seven yeah, left for no, me, and I right. just got to get one and or two of them. That, it's, not like the, it's not like the Delta's that large and even, that I can never win one. Even it's, the most confident like Patriots fan right, would agree right, right? we're which at is crazy. the tail end here. I mean, <laughs> really, yeah, I mean you, maybe they can well, squeeze so one just more to trend, out, You get to Adi's point, just he just said, like, let's imagine you're in the NBA right now, and you're in the Eastern Conference, and you're thinking, I got to get better than LeBron James and the Cavs. I understand LeBron's yeah. 32. He's not going to be great. But, I mean, you're thinking, for the next five years, how am I going to get better? Because Kyrie Irving's getting better. Yeah. How am I going to get better than Cleveland? Or how, in the West, oh, how am West. I going to get better than this Warriors We're sitting team? here right how now. How am I going to do this? We're sitting here right now. Yeah. We're far away from the playoffs, and we know who's going to be the four teams in the Final Four, practically. Unless, unless certain, Cleveland gets I, another I, I, injury, I, I, I would argue. Okay. I, w- I would argue that the baseball, uh, basketball, sorry, the talent level is. I mean, I, I would have a hard time convincing myself that I could beat like a team like LeBron's or whatever. Football is a little different. I mean, as, as as influential as Prady as quarterback is, there are recipes for success that don't include having that star quarterback. Yes, Denver did it last year. I Absolutely. mean, you know, I mean, you have an amazing defense, and you have a completely adequate, competent quarterback. You you can win the Super Bowl as well. Whereas I think in basketball, if you don't have that at least that one or two stars, and you're you're toast. I also one, one of the lessons yeah. about football is that you you and we, we've been talking about chance. You know, this entire segment basically, you just want to be you want to have you want to be at the door, and you want and you want to be in the mix when chance breaks your way. Well, yeah. so, well, so you want to consistently good, so that you know when chance does break your way. You're you're there to take it. Yeah, I mean part of I mean part of what you're saying also, Kate, is you know they don't play one game in basketball. They play best of seven. Let's see you beat Golden State or Cleveland in best of seven. It's just impossible. It's just you can't do it. You can beat in one game. I had a conversation with an NBA general manager in the last week, and he said, "I think teams are coming up with new goals right now." It's it, it's so unlikely you're going to win the NBA if you're not Golden State that you're having to think about what are your goals actually? Do we care about being the Maybe playoffs? Maybe you need it's to just trust making... the process and tank so that you actually have Is a chance to get what, some players. Come on, we have the Sixers. What are they doing with that strategy? Well, the Sixers are improving. Yes, okay, are. yes, there's only one direction to go when you were the Sixers. Well, <laughs> they actually <laughs> tested that theory for a few years, my friend. <laughs> 
Well, we've got we've got another direction to go. We've got three more quarters to go on this show. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. We're one quarter into those two hours. Whole crew here this morning. First time it's been that way for a while. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and co-creators of Wharton Moneyball. Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. Audie Weiner, professor of statistics. And Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing. I am practice professor of the operations, information, and decisions department. And we're here every Wednesday morning for a couple of hours talking sports analytics. You can join us, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We're replayed five times over the course of the week. If you're listening one of those times and feel like commenting, jump on email, drop map, and email will pick it up. In the next half hour, this is the part of the show where we bring in a guest, usually bring in a guest, and we are delighted this morning to bring in Peter Keating. Peter is senior writer at ESPN. He has a regular column for ESPN, the magazine called The Numbers Numbers, I believe, is the name of the column. He's um, been central to a documentary, League of Denial, on concussions in football, and um, has worked on all kinds. He's kind of an investigative-slash-analytics guy there, and he's always doing interesting work. Peter, welcome to the show. Professor Massey, it's good to speak with you. Good to speak to you, man. How you been? I'm pretty good. Um, I'm pretty good. I, I have to say, you know, you guys have, a, have an excellent program, and... Uh, I'm not a I'm not a mathematician, but I do I do play one at a magazine. Uh, <laughs> you do, yes, you do. And I have uh, you know I've written about Simpson's paradox, and I've written hey. about the Nash equilibrium. But You're just not flirting with us. Oh my goodness! All all the phrasing. Yeah. Well, you know this this is how this is how weak we are. We're all just we're, we're such big celebrities now. We just have to play the celebrity game, Peter. <laughs> We're just shallow celebrities. Now. Yeah, I know. I walk down the street and people say, "Can you can you find me a Simpsons paradox or <laughs> Kelly's paradox or something?" Well, I, I think that's probably true about Professor Massey. There's probably team, you know, fans of t- NFL teams that traded away uh, picks to move up in the draft who probably go, you know, meet him on the street. You know? Right, right, Peter. I I feel, I feel like we've had you on before. I can't believe we have not had you on it. And it is a little embarrassing that the reason we thought of you this week was. Uh, the tweet about your bachelor piece. So indeed, yes, that's that's what finally landed me the spot. Is right hey, about the bachelor. Whatever yeah. it takes, man. Whatever it takes. So so listen, tell us. I mean, you you t- you cover really serious topics, right? You're generally one of the serious people at ESPN, including and, the Bachelor. And now you go do Bachelor. So how did this? We want to hear about it. But first, how did it come about? Well, look, um, I spend a lot of my time on on what you what you just pointed out with serious investigations. Uh, Scandals, uh, concussions, uh, subjects where people are being mistreated, right? And every time I'm on Outside the Lines, I feel like I talk to my mom afterwards and my wife afterwards, and they say, you look so grim. And I spend a lot of time covering grim subjects. And so sometimes I try to think about fun things that I do and see if we can somehow integrate them into work, you know? And, and it's, it's an excuse to tell my family I'm actually watching figure skating because of work, you know, or in this case. <laughs> this uh, is what I do all the time. You know, yeah, or, 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 or really obscure college basketball games. I'm doing it for work. Or and, competitive um, eating. And, and, yeah, and in this case, I was thinking, you know, we, we've done this project now for 10 years where we look at what we call giant killers, which are deep underdogs in the NCAA tournament yep. and why they tend to succeed. 
And I was thinking, you know, we, we have managed to apply the techniques we use there to other subjects, like the World Cup in soccer. Um, and I was thinking maybe we could apply them to Bachelor contestants. I mean, you know, uh, there, there's, there's a certain amount of data out there that's, that's piled up on the Internet over the past few years. And yep. there's a certain number of characteristics that, that differentiate these contestants. And you could see which ones are associated with winning and then try to predict this year's winner. Okay, so, so give us a quick rundown of what, of what stats you leaned on and what conclusions you drew. Well, uh, it turns out the single worst attribute for a Bachelor contestant is red hair. Um, and, 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 and actually, <laughs> This makes it, no it, sense to me at all, by the it, way. But well, I mean, well, well, know, let me, let me back away from this for a second. Red hair, how many Bachelor contestants have red hair? Okay, so it turns out that among people who watch The Bachelor with red hair, this is kind of a meme, which I did not realize, which is that every year they have a redhead on or two, and they get wiped out in the first week. <laughs> And and red 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 redhead and the bachelor's like red shirt on Star Trek. It that totally person's is. just doomed. <laughs> the token redhead. And I went and I you know I went back to see how bad this was. And last year, there's this perfectly lovely young woman named Laura who uh, got axed in the first week, and that was by a bachelor who kept a woman who gave him a dental exam when he said hello. And. <laughs> <laughs> and, and two twins who showed up and spoke in unison, and they oh made God. it oh, too, and the redhead did not. So, okay, so, um, okay, so no we got... question. I mean, and and and, and look, uh, this actually gets to a good point about data using data because you're sitting there wondering how good is your material, and you're sitting there thinking. Hmm. Do I have to try to differentiate dye jobs from natural hair? And then you yeah, realize, you know, right. what, what have you done with your life? You know. <laughs> hey, you said it was a break. We're going to give you this break, Peter. We're, gonna, we're totally indulging it. But here we go into some serious stuff. What about race? Well, that is actually the, the second strongest uh, indicator. Um, you know, the Bachelor has pretty notoriously never had a black Bachelor or a winner. It went four years in a row without even having a black contestant. And um, last year there was actually some some quite some tension between the contestants uh, and with some some of the contestants throwing around comments like uh, uh, Jubilee, who was one of the African-American contestants and an actual contender, you know, that, that the Bachelor wouldn't like him because she couldn't hang out with the other soccer moms. Anyway, our model, which is basically a regression model, estimates that being black has cost contestants an average of 2.3 weeks on the show. Um, it's, it's pretty stark. You know, whatever, whatever you think of the, the silly dramas that go on on the show, uh, you know, it's a significant negative. The thing is, that's interesting is, is that as I was watching the show this year, there's this woman on the show, uh, Rachel Lindsay, who's, who's older than your average winner, and she's African-American. She's an attorney. She's got a great smile. She sparkles with The Bachelor. I mean, they have these great interactions. And this Bachelor this year, Nick, <laughs> Nick has been on many of these shows. And I started to wonder, if, this, if these guys, you know, if the producers and Nick wanted to break with the formula, this would be a great time to do it. They have a great contestant. He's been on the show right. forever. And lo and behold, the day after we published our piece, um, they announced that Rachel is going to be next year's Bachelorette. So she will be right. the first the first bachelor or right. bachelorette who's African-American. Right, and it was unusual for them to announce it this early in the in the game, right? They usually announce it before it's over, but not it quite this early. Still on, she's still on the show. Usually you take the fan favorite who didn't win, and you make him or her the lead on the next show. So this is an indication that she's not winning. It do, isn't it also cute that she's not going to win this year? Right. I mean, that, that's the point. She's, she's, this, I mean, the current season is still in progress, and but, they've announced she's going to be on next I mean, year. This so. kind of underscores that what you're looking at when you're doing bachelor 
analytics are not the preferences of the bachelors as much as the preferences of the producers, right? It really well, is kind of producer analytics because it's all scripted. Well, it's an interesting mix, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's not clearly, all scripted. Clearly, it's an, okay, the producers, right. the clearly, the producers don't end up with somebody they don't want, but at the same time. I think they are influenced as the year goes sure. along by who gets along with The Bachelor and also by the audience reaction. I mean, this is a show that is, if you watch the trailers, um, you know, sometimes they're steering the audience and sometimes the audience is steering them, which, which makes it kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not wrestling. You know, there, so, there, is, there so, is some feedback going on. Yeah, so Peter, this is Eric Brado. I have a question then. So in the same spirit as this, since your analysis talks about, I assume, the outcome variable you're predicting is number of weeks on the show, and then you're using characteristics of the contestants, there would then be something for someone to do something about, like if one wanted to be racially fair, which is a good thing, one would want to construct a set of contestants then that maximizes the chances of balance. And then wouldn't also, couldn't one do that, given your analysis, couldn't now one say for next season of The Bachelor, shouldn't we have 12 contestants or whatever the number is that's constructed in a certain way, so not as not to favor one group or another, because that would be if, wait, and then couldn't you also look at the person selecting who the winner is and say, what are the predispositions of those individuals? And let's choose a bachelor who actually is more likely to be more fair and equitable. Couldn't your analysis be used for design? Yes. And the interesting question to me is, is how much, and we'll never know because the producers keep it very tight, uh, very tightly under wraps exactly how this all works. But the interesting question to me is, how much of is that, is that already being done analytically? How much of it is being done intuitively? And how much is just like a regular casting call? Because I think that they probably, the producers certainly have ways, some analysis on how to optimize their viewing audience. And I, and yeah, I, and yeah I, exactly. This is, I'm, I'm trying to piece this all together because I've actually never seen this Bachelor thing that you've been describing. And so I'm trying <laughs> to figure like out. You act like it's a foreign, like an alien call. Like, <laughs> what yeah, is yeah. this well, show you know, called The Bachelor? Yeah, I've never I heard of like it. That. I mean, well, you have to realize, right Kate. Now and watch, go, go get your DVR set up and yep. watch it now and then come back. I, I mean. I, I, there's nothing I can do. It's too late. That ship has sailed. <laughs> Kate is a guy who will never bring fantasy sports because he has this thing about against it. Yet we're talking about The Bachelor. I just want to throw that out. It's principled, actually. It's principled. I don't I don't like I don't like fantasy for for fantasy purposes or really the bachelor. But if you want to talk fantasy <laughs> analytics and bachelor analytics, now it's like it's like a it's it's a little it's enough meta that I'm distant from it and I'm okay with okay, it. Okay, well, wait, you, you, wait, let me. Can I just break in there for one second? I want to suggest strongly that um, sports. If you're a sports fan on one side and kind of a gambling fan on the other side, and you don't like sports reduced to players as trading cards, exactly. Thank fantasy, you, Peter. Thank you. Fantasy actually. Is if you're in a keeper league, okay, with yes. smart competitors, fantasy is mu- can be much more like sports and much less like gambling. In keeper leagues, I'm telling you, again and again and again, the same owners wind up with the same players because you get attached to your fantasy players like you're a fan, not just a sure. Interesting. So Interesting. let me get back to to, to, to the Bachelor yeah. here. I just so want to throw that out there. You, this is a you you, you while I'm listening to this. I'm thinking the producers who script a lot of this, not all of it. It does is led by one goal and one goal only. Ratings. They yeah. want viewers. And, and, they don't, yeah, they that, don't want any yeah. of this. Stuff. You know, er, er, Eric's sort of central assumption that somehow the producers would be interested in a sense of fairness or like the, the is, is I, no. I think, not really their goal. He's acknowledging. He's acknowledging. So, by the yeah. way, we're talking to Peter Keating. Peter is the senior writer at ESPN. And despite having written a frivolous article on Bachelor, which we quickly <laughs> well, signed him up to talk about, he is a, as a serious writer, investigative writer there. 
um, at ESPN and, and well known for taking on topics like concussions, for example. Now, this race thing is is pretty serious topic, and especially with what's going on in the country these days. And so the fact that they've chosen Rachel Lindsay to be the next Bachelorette and chosen her earlier in the program than usual means that, you know, there is this balance between them trying to shape public opinion and responding to public opinion, and maybe they've decided to, to, to dive into that. Well, I also, I also think that you can be, even in a scripted show, even when producers have tight control of a program, I think this is an important lesson, even when they use analytics, they may be quite capable of falling behind the audience. Lo and behold, if you have an African-American contestant who's an attractive, funny, smart person who the audience likes, the audience might be telling you they're a lot more Absolutely. willing than your surveys a- indicated to to uh, to have more diversity on the show. Absolutely. Okay, we 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 got to wrap this up, but we can't wrap it up without without talking about a particular character from the show. So to round out your model, you also look at age, height, region, and occupation. You find that, that like, now these you, are things I can grasp. Young, <laughs> short, from the northwest. If you're from the northeast, you're really not going to go very far. Yes. And and helping 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 industries, uh, helping jobs. So. You you crunched the numbers and you found that, and this really was to the chagrin of many watchers. You found that your your favorite was Corinne, the young blonde vixen. Corinne, is this right? <laughs> I'm, I want a recording of you saying young blonde vixen. Wait, can you say this? Again? I think we all it's we're it, all yeah. going to be borrowing the tapes so on that young, one. So young. This now, is helpful. Like, young is helpful. Short is helpful. I was suppressing all yeah. kinds of young, worse yeah. words. Young is helpful. Short is helpful. Now here's the north. Deal, okay? Did you say north northwest or yeah. southwest? Northwest. Northwest. No. Northwest is drastically overrepresented among winners. Now, okay, like a nurse but, from Portland would be ideal. Well, la- listen, short nurse from last, Portland. Last Young. season's last season's winner was a flight attendant from Oregon. Okay, so, there, there you go. go. There. Now, right. now look, this points to. I wrote, there's an important statistic. Flight attendant counts here. as a support industry. They have not been particularly supportive of you, me over of my you. over my career. It's a school career, yeah. but anyway. You know the the thing is, and this points to something very important statistically. Actually, um, women who have been in the hospitality. In, or, or leisure or service industries, bartenders, flight attendants, whatnot, um, have done very well on the show, but tend not to win. The winners tend to come from the helping professions, uh, right. social workers, teachers, nurses. And, and I had a line in the piece about how it's almost like the guys on The Bachelor, the type who would date a salon coordinator who used to be Miss Rhode Island, right. but then ended up with a, deli- a labor and delivery nurse, and right. that actually happened one year. Um, so the same <laughs> right. thing is true about being a villain. Being the show's villain is now, it's a little subjective, but every year there's a villain or two who just acts outrageously. On average, they tend to stick around longer. They don't usually win. So Corinne is an interesting case. She yeah. made it to, I think this is week eight now. She's the breakout, as Professor Massey put it, vixen of the show. <laughs> and so the question everyone is asking is, is this as far as she goes? You know, the, the numbers say there's no other contestant who the the model likes better right and uh nick certainly hasn't seen past her ways yet right so that's that you know i mean but, nick sounds like a tool to be nick's honest a, but it's a complete tool but uh <laughs> but i mean uh, return to this as sort of produ- we're doing essentially producer analytics here i mean my prior going into something like this i mean this is not an empirical statement is that yeah of course you would want a villain ed to make it deep into the show for drama and you'd probably want that villain to come very close but not win, ideally. I mean, yeah, maybe right, maybe, exactly. maybe I'm being a no, little bit too, it. like, obvious, like, with historical yeah, no, narratives sure. or whatever. So, but Like, they wouldn't let Nick fire her right So, now, Peter, right? let me ask you a question. How well can you predict the winner? How well can you predict the rank ordering? Like, how good a model are we talking about? You said you were, I assume you said you're in a regression. Like, is the, you know, 
Um, what's the likely, like when you back cast or you look at how well, or even in sample fit, how often are you able to predict the winner? It's uh, the, the, the correlation. In sample? Peter, we, I'm sorry, we didn't, we didn't tell you that one of us was going to take this very seriously. <laughs> well, we're having a discussion of analytics here. I want to yeah, know how no. well the model works. In sample, it works it's, 100%. It's a legitimate question. The thing about villains or hospitality workers, wanting them, them sticking around but not winning, suggests that whatever the, the fit is, it's not totally linear, right? Because you want someone like Corinne around for seven or eight weeks, which means on average it's going to look like she's going to stick around longer but right. then not good. win. That's a good so, point. So remember, this is just a first stab at a model because there's so many other factors. You know, what names they call first, who gets the first impression rows, all kinds of things that you could feed into this to make it more accurate. So the fit is pretty good in terms of rank order. It's pretty loose in terms of, you know, the variation explained overall. But it's pretty good in terms of rank order. So, Peter, we want to give you a chance to talk about some of your other work. Tell us what's coming up next from you. But yeah. <laughs> well, well, now, Good well, segue. I, my <laughs> mind is just too cluttered. All I can think about is Corinne and, and Vanessa well, and Rachel let, now. Let us, let us point you in another frivolous direction that we talk about uh, once or twice a year, and that is that you've got a dog called Otis. What, what kind mm-hmm. of dog is Otis? Otis is a black lab mixed puppy. He's a rescue dog with okay. a stub- with a stubby tail. Okay, so you know, black labs have never won at Westminster. <laughs> Westminster's the, Westminster is so rigged. I will not even. Well, this that. no, like, we want no, terriers. We want terriers are the hospitality yeah. like the industry short hospitality. Of, of, of Westminster. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what you all would love is our Giant Killers project. We're right. I'm. I'm. We're posting every week now. Okay, and we look at what te- why teams succeed and don't in the NCAA tournament. Uh, starting in like November now, so we're already writing about potential giants and killers. So give and, us, uh, give us. We've been, we are a little bit football obsessed, and and Audi just indulges us. But the rest of us are football obsessed. So we're just kind of emerging from the haze of the NFL and college football seasons, and we need a quick primer on college basketball season. Maybe your your giant killers is a way into that. Can you tell us what you're predicting right now? Sure, uh, underdogs. The real basic. Underlying principle is that underdogs succeed by going high risk, high reward, right, and especially good. in a win or go home situation. Right. The the traits associated with that on the court are pressing for turnovers, crashing for offensive boards, shooting lots of threes. You try to maximize okay. your possessions or the value of your possessions. Okay. There are certain teams that go wildly out of their way to do precisely those things, like West Virginia. If you watch West Virginia. They have an amazing combination of hitting the offensive boards, yet applying relentless full-court pressure to try to generate turnovers. And so that makes them very uh, inoculated against teams that can have a great shooting night. And so even though I don't know if they're going to win the national championship, I can tell you no underdog is going to come within 90 feet of them because they just don't give opponents um, multiple chances to score, and it's it's pretty amazing to watch. So, um, our, Real quickly, our Peter, ongoing Peter, analysis kind of cl- clusters the giants and killers into different families and looks at matchups. It's it's pretty interesting. It's cool. But Peter, uh, can you win this high risk strategy, which we all nodded yes, that makes a lot of sense. Can you win six games that way, or is this for the underdog to maximize his chances of the Sweet Sixteen or the Elite Eight? Can you really win six games with this high six, variance six being, strategy? Six being what it takes to, to, win, to the, win the title. To win the title. Well, like Syracuse. You can like last year, Syracuse. You can make the Final Four, or VCU is a great example in 2011. To, to actually win the national championship, you do have to have um, you do have to have some talent, which means you usually have to have some some good shooting ability or a superstar playmaker. But there are teams that have there are teams that have combined all of that. There's also teams that 
successfully ward off these underdogs. You know, teams that are just dominant interior offensive rebounders, those are successful giants. So, like, like everything in life, it's, it's a two-by-two two grid, right? There's successful <laughs> and unsuccessful giants and killers. So can you give us a little more depth than just West Virginia? Who else should we be looking for as the tournament cranks up here in about a month? Well, um, I think that uh, our safest giants right now include West Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Baylor is an interesting team. Baylor has fallen to underdogs the last two seasons, but they're a much more well-rounded team now. Um, we don't like UCLA um, as much as the country does. I mean, they're a fun, fast team, but they're, they're vulnerable. A lot of the Pac-12 teams, Arizona, UCLA, are, are more vulnerable because they don't focus on um, – they, they do focus more on shooting the lights out as opposed to accumulating possessions through rebounding or turnovers. So, Peter, I still haven't heard you mention – not that this is a bad thing – I still haven't heard you mention the number one and number two teams in the nation, which are the undefeated – the Zags of Gonzaga, and I haven't heard you mention the defending national champions local, Villanova who local, are sitting here at with 24-2 and two who – are ranked number two. So you guys don't particularly like either of them Gonzaga, to go deep? Gonzaga is a fine team. They have not played a strong schedule. I personally like Gonzaga because I think their coach is a smart guy who's into the right things on and off the court. But Gonzaga is like a top four or five team. You know, they should be in the mix. Um, you know, some of these questions are relative. You know, like Kansas or North Carolina, they, you know, they have a chance of, of winning like any top, you know, six or eight team does. Villanova is an interesting case because Villanova actually plays on the perimeter. They're kind of a gambling giant. They play more like an underdog. They pressure the perimeter. They cut off passing, and they focus more. Uh, you know, they actually don't have a traits like um, like a North Carolina or a Baylor who you just can come in and see, or a Kentucky who would just come in and mash underdogs. Right. And that means their spread is much more variable. I mean, this Villanova team is similar to the team that won it all last year. They're also very similar to the team that lost to North Carolina State in 2015. Wow. is actually the high-risk, high-reward overdog. Okay. As opposed to a high-risk, high-reward underdog. Got it. And, Peter, on that note, our local boys, Villanova, we're going to have to let you go to get out of here in time for our break. But we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Anytime. Love talking to you guys. We're, we're going to get you back before Bassford next season. We're not going to wait for Bassford again. <laughs> Th- thanks for the time. And I'm man. running off to watch keep, it. Keep up the great work. That was, <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. You bet. That was Peter Keating, senior writer at ESPN. He is uh, the author of the Numbers column at ESPN, the magazine. You can follow him on Twitter. Peter Keating is his name. And uh, that has been the first half of our show. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, coming to you live from the Wharton School, Philadelphia, PA, Huntsman Hall, Locust Walk. Got the whole crew in here this morning. We're coming up on a three-year anniversary. Three years ago, we put this show together. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning to talk sports analytics. This morning, it's Eric Bradlow, Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email us. Email us anytime, any day of the week. 
you hear us being replayed, one of the times we're replayed, just drop us a note. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. We are just off the phone with ESPN writer Peter Keating. Even though we forced him to talk to us about Bachelor Analytics for 20 minutes, he actually does a bunch of other stuff as well. Peter's a great person to read and follow out there on ESPN, ESPN the Magazine, Twitter, whatever you got, whatever you got. This next half hour, delighted to have Chris Bowers join us. Chris is Director of Player Personnel. That's not a professional position. Sounds professional, but it's at Northwestern University. He's Director of Player Personnel, Northwestern University. Chris Bowers. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Kate. How you doing? I'm doing real fine, sir. How are you? I can't be much better. No? Got to, watch, got to watch our football team run some sprints and do some stations starting at 630 this morning. <laughs> uh, I didn't break a sweat, but they sure did. No? <laughs> when you get up and watch those guys go at it like that, doesn't it? It must inspire you to, to be more active, right? That has to be a positive effect on you. Yes and no. <laughs> no I mean, really? Partly you think you're so far uh, over the hill on it. Oh, uh, that, that may be true. Maybe there's not much of a chance, but definitely the... Um, I'm around a group of young I can men. see that being simultaneously demoralizing and so inspiring. <laughs> yeah. one, one question that occurs to me here. This is 6.30 this morning. This is the middle of the semester. This is not the season. This is off-season. That's right. So how, yeah. many, how much practicing are they doing right now? We're in what the NCAA would call the eight-hour segment. So you have eight hours of mandatory activity that would be lifting, running, or um, up to two of that can be used for film review and film study with our coaches. So, um, of course, you have... Is that a day? And, eight, and eight? Shower, no, eight hours a week. Eight hours a week. And you have right. two mandatory off days on it. So it's a, it's a good time of year for them. Um, they're probably investing beyond that on their own. They just aren't doing it with coaches. You so, know? I mean, so our big, quarterback walked past me the other day to, to go into the video room and pick up his virtual reality goggles and, and look at, you know, he's a, we film in, in virtual reality, and he's in there looking at pressures and I said hey man I know you don't have a ball but just get it out of your hand you know they right sack you when you throw it right right um, <laughs> so Chris big picture y'all y'all signing signing day was last week this is yep. a relative I mean now you're on to 2018s I'm sure yep. but in general you've got this run up until spring practice and spring practice is the very intense part of college football in the spring semester and but outside of spring practice they, they can't have much contact with coaches so it's like it's all about the s and c guy right and this is kind of what y'all are in right now yeah, it, it's really kind of, you get ebbs and flows to everything. Now, we start our spring practice next week. You do? Wow. Okay. Uh, which is kind of, and we go, um, our, we are a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday practice, and we'll meet on the off days, um, except Sunday. And we'll do that three weeks, and then we hit, we're on that quarter system, so we hit finals in spring practice. Oh, uh, that's what does it. Off, and then we come back and do two more weeks of Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Got it. And uh, in 2018 recruiting, it's a huge, huge time for us. Um, we have a, a lot of top prospects who will come to visit for spring practice. So those spring right. practice weekends in my world are, are pretty critical. You could have five to 15 young men we've already offered a scholarship to in their junior year coming to visit. Right. You know, a year ago, um, 12 of our, you know, of the kids we signed last Wednesday, 12 of them were committed before May 1st. Oh, that's remarkable. Early. Okay, you so know? this, so, it just doesn't, for you it doesn't, there's some version of your life that is getting up at 6.30 run wind sprints, right? I mean, it just, that kind of doesn't go away. Let's hear more about your world. So how, you, you're involved with recruiting for Northwestern. Yep. And in particular, you bring some analytics to this. How did you get involved in this in general? And, and where did the analytics come from? Well, I got involved on the, on the recruiting side because I was, you know, I wanted to coach, you know, and, uh, and so I was in a, co- I had a coaching background. And when Coach Fitzgerald created the director of player personnel role, which is basically an in-house or off-field recruiting coordinator. Um, okay. 
you know, he had a lot, he had a lot of people who I think on paper were probably more qualified than I was, but we had worked together. And so, you know, I, I never forget I got a text from him about this job and another job that he had opening, and I read it to my wife, and you, and you know how well someone knows you and knows your background. She looked right at me and goes. Well, it's going to be hard to tell him no, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and it was hard to tell him no, and so I ended up here. Um, How long yeah. ago was that, Chris? You know, I came back in this role in, in 2011, August 2011. Okay, and so, where where were you when you got that text? What job? Were I was you at work? Valparaiso University. I was the defensive okay. backs coach and special teams coordinator, and I'd only okay. been there about six months. We we were there for six months, had a chance to have our first child, and a few months later, we came back to Northwestern. Okay, you so said I was a graduate assistant here in 05 and 06 and worked in recruiting here in 03 and 04. So I, I'd spent four years of my life here. Um, and what, so. so Pat Fitzgerald's the head coach there now, and he's the one that hired you. You say you've worked with him before. What what was – and he played at Northwestern, didn't yeah, he? Where he, did you come across him? He he played here, was a great player here. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously a two-time defense player of the year and won two Big Ten championships. And mm-hmm. um, When I came in 03, Randy Walker hired me as our head coach. Um, he was obviously um, – three years later, Coach Walker passed away on um, – a, you know, a shocking sudden thing. And so right. um, I had spent three years with, with Coach Fitz as, you know, he was an assistant coach, linebacker coach, young okay. guy. Okay. I mean, when he became the head coach, he was 31 years old. So, wow. Um, so, and then I had his first year as a head coach, I was a defensive graduate assistant working with the secondary, and I left that to to go coach on my own some places. And um, so, again, that kind of, it goes back to my boss is the guy that, in 2004, after recruiting weekend, I'd end up at his house watching NFL playoff games because he was a young linebacker coach. <laughs> you know, so it's a little, a little different relationship. Um, right. So that's kind of how I got here. Um, and then you're always looking for a way to get better, you know. And uh, Coach Fitz has a, a statement that's partly tongue-in-cheek because you see a lot of things statistically where he'll say, you know, the media will often say, well, stats are for losers. Yeah, right. Two years ago, we won ten football games, and you could give us a million stats that were bad about us, and why we. But, but <laughs> then the end stat was the one on the scoreboard, and we won ten times. That so, so it was a good year, you know. And, and right. I think you get, you have that kind of mindset and mantra and some things in the athletics world, yet you're still always looking for an edge, so you see where you can do that. Chris, you know? let me let me just underscore what you're saying here, because it, it, I've, I've thought for years this is one of the big tensions on using analytics in sports, because analytics are really all about process, and, and, and most of them are outcome blind, and you find out that if, you're, if you've really modeled the process well, the outcome doesn't add any predictive value whatsoever, and yet we know psychology is such that we get completely distracted by outcomes. So that's all on the analytics side, but then everything about sports, and especially with the strong culture around, say, football, is about when it's like exactly one stat mattered. You are, you know, you are what your record is. Is Bar- the famous Parcells quote. So, how do you bring those two things together? How can a coach like Fitz, who has to stand up there and and, and pull the best effort he can possibly get out of these guys, all in service of winning a game, turn around then and say, well, you know, what really matters was the process. Well, I mean, I don't think it's easy to do. I don't, a lot of people don't do it well, you know, quite frankly. Um, and I think you, you do have that whole thing in our world where you're talking about eighteen to twenty-two year old. Uh, young men who are, you know, their effort level and their attitude and where they're at emotionally and all those things um, play a huge impact on, you know, on how you perform on Saturday. But there's other parts of that that are not. I mean, there's there's plenty of um, there's win probability stuff that's really amazing that that you can use in course of a game. You know, um, and I think I think you I think back to the end up losing that, I believe. But you think back to that Patriots game, the Colts were. It, the, 
Patriots went for it on like a fourth and one on their own thirty. Yeah. In the yeah. fourth quarter, you yeah. know, and and statistically speaking, and and every you know analyst, someone who does one probability would tell you that was by far the right call. It just didn't work. And that's the other thing is just because something is statistically valid doesn't mean it's it's not a hundred percent. It's not always going to work. Right. You know, and so you know, in our office. One of the one of the drivers and some of our uh, use of analytics, our, our director of football operations, you know, has a business degree. Worked at Accenture when he got out of school. Missed football, came back. You know, he's in Kellogg now, in his MBA. Cody Shada, um, and Cody started kind of on our football side and kind of pushing our coaches to some things. And then, in the recruiting world, you know, it's funny the name of your show. I mean, I read Moneyball, the book, and in baseball, you have some finite statistics and some things you can isolate whereas in football especially on the evaluation side of a player you you could possibly recruit um it doesn't quite work like that now the nfl has some enough data on combine they can give you well nobody's ever started at offensive tackle in the nfl who's not at least six four and a quarter mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so well then you can cancel out everyone under six four <laughs> before you draft them um it's not quite that simple at the college level because you know, you're looking at video and evaluating athletically juniors and sophomores in high school. You know, right. So there's that's a young person still who's going to, you know, who's not really, if they would redshirt and have a couple of years now, playing until they're right. 21. Well, this is one of the things that so, caught our eye about what what you're doing there because we're familiar, you know, very familiar with the the player evaluation tools that are used at the NFL level and increasingly, you know, at the at the college level about their players and certainly with the, with the college draft. But we we are not yet familiar with the tools that are being used in the recruiting side of things. And yeah, obviously and the, ex- the extent to which it is really kind of analytic or automated or, or, or empirically based as opposed to sort of like somebody just kind of man- manually curating, like watching film, you know, and right. giving kind of more of a scouting evaluation. I mean, going back to the original kind of money ball context, it was really this sort of balance between analytics and, and, and kind of traditional scouting. And, and, you know, I'm just intrigued about what, what kind of state recruiting is. Um, in that context. Yeah, and there's there's been a couple. It's funny because probably the reason you guys are talking to me is I had a chance to talk with uh, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today about a, uh, a startup, kind of a, a student-based thing here at Northwestern called Zcruit that um, we worked with. And that, that kind of – it's funny how many phone calls I got after that, typically from people who are doing some type of recruiting analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the challenge is just to be open-minded – Yes, you know, absolutely. Yet, yeah, you you still have to allocate time to what's going to work. I can't spend four hours a day every day listening to somebody give me a new idea or pitch a, pitch their product or whatever. But you have to know what's out there and, and kind of be open-minded to it. And we're fortunate here. You know, you have to have resources in some situations to be able to do them because they aren't giving you products for free. You know, um, you know, we had a unique situation here. We're on the recruiting landscape. It wasn't as much on the identification with the recruit as – the difference, one of the major differences between college and the NFL is there is a draft day and they're just picking who they want. Right. And college football, when you offer a scholarship to a prospect, at least verbally, you can't put it in writing until a certain, that's an NCAA rule, but um, when you offer a prospect is up to the university, up to the school. So those come at different times. It, it would almost be like the the Eagles telling somebody, hey, hey you're a first-round draft pick to us, and then the Cowboys do it in March and the person has a chance to sign. I mean, that that's insane. You would never, I mean, they try to equate it to NFL is kind of wild. So you have that. And then you have the other side is that prospect obviously has a choice. So 
this kind of analytics came back to, um, you know, a, a student who's working in our office volunteering just loved it. I mean, he was just, he was the young man who at 10 years old got his dad's Rivals.com password and just loved the whole thing, right? <laughs> Rivals.com, let's just know, for I mean, clarification. Some people, playing, some people are playing Monopoly and he's like reading Rivals. So um, Rivals is a recruit, one of the big four recruiting services that yeah. rates high school players for college football. And does, Right. So he was reading all the articles and what, and he just was into it. And then he came to school here, a very bright young man, um, and and was working in our office. And, of course, then he went through, you know, in a, where are inefficiencies and what am I seeing? And then he sat in a course taught by our university president, uh, Morty Shapiro, who's tremendous supporter of our program. And in it, Morty got into, got into a – you know the the regression analytics of college admissions offices. Wow, targeting that's great. Who they're going to end up getting? Right. Well, this allocate whether that be financial aid dollars, scholarship dollars, how that works. And so Ben says, "Well, we have more information on these recruits. I mean, we know them well. It's this isn't college admissions. This is a coach on a phone with a kid once a week, and and someone like me reading every tweet that a kid sends out for in some cases eighteen months. Right. So. Um, or more. So, so Chris, you know let's a lot me, about these people. And Chris, so his thought was we should be able to predict this pretty well. Right. So just to clarify, we're talking about, as opposed to modeling who's going to succeed in college football, we're talking about modeling who's going to accept your scholarship offer. Yeah. Right. And so that's kind of was what flipped that and made this unique. Right. How are we going to model? Is that possible? And this is, so then when you said my shoes, at first I thought, my first thing was you can't do that. Right. Um, you, for what, you mean you, it's not possible? Morally you or, or, or technically? my brain went, this is not possible. Because I, I was too, I was just ignorant enough of the process. I mean, look, I'm like the poster child. The fact that I'm talking to you all makes me the poster child for liberal arts education, right? My history degree from Wittenberg University didn't really tell me much about algorithms, okay? Um, and, I, and I loved football. So, so Ben says to me, I think we can, you know, predict who's going to say yes or no and i thought well you're crazy you're talking about a 16 or 17 year old you know high school student and they don't know what they're having for lunch you know and chris alone, can you tell us can you tell us a little bit about why that's important to you can how so, because so, yeah you, so but, so what happened is i first i went you can't do it then i was like well you can do it but you're just telling me what I, is obviously to me intuitively and then it became no there's real value here it kind of came full circles i Saw data and we worked through it. But here's what becomes a value is you, in our situation, we have a finite number of scholarships. Say we're going to, we have a space in the 2018 class for, let's say, three linebackers. Well, if I have four scholarship offers extended to, to young men to play linebacker here and I have room for those three, but the numbers tell me we aren't getting to any of them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then I probably need to go to number five, six, seven, right. maybe eight on my board. Right. And what happens in our in our business is if five, six, seven, and eight, if you don't go there soon enough, then they end up gone. Right. Right. And now right. I'm stuck taking nine and ten. Right. So is there value to help me, you know, or do I know I should just wait on these top few because the data shows that we have a 40% chance or better to get them, and, and this is where – Football coaches look at me like I'm crazy, but this took a while for my head to get around. A 40% chance for us to get someone meant we were going to get them about 50 to 60% of the time. So that just sounds insane, right? That doesn't even make sense to people who don't understand numbers well. So well, it doesn't make sense to somebody who. Yeah, it doesn't make sense as a probability statement anyway. Right. Um, so it sounds confusing, but 
so when you started looking at that, then it helped you, you know, helped us on that standpoint. I think it's something that's grown and evolving. I mean, I had a situation two years ago where Ben was so in such an infant stage of this that I can remember texting him or emailing him, hey, can you run numbers on this kid or this kid? And I looked at our receiver pool, and we had our camp that summer, and we had a receiver coming who there was a chance we could offer. And our receiver coach and head coach and even myself were watching thinking at camp thinking, is he good enough to play for us? But one of the things that was going my head going through my head at camp was, I hope they think he's good enough to play for us because what they don't know is we, we aren't getting the guys we offered. Mm-hmm. Right, so right. It became a push comes to shove, and there was a debate. My my word was going to be we should offer this kid a scholarship just because we're trying to take three receivers, and right now we effectively are going to end up with none. Got it. Based Got on it. who we've offered, so that's kind of where the value comes in. Okay, we're talking to Chris Bowers. Chris is director of player personnel at Northwestern Football, and he's bringing analytics to high school recruiting. And in particular, Chris has been telling us about it's really aimed more at is the guy going to accept. And what we're hearing is it, it doesn't mean you don't offer somebody because the probability is low. It's that you'll go deeper on a position. You have to um, kind of track the expected, expected number value, of players basically. you get. Right, right. So, so, Chris, this is Eric Bradlow. I want to ask you a quick question. Um, your work, it seems, on this would also have a spillover to on-field evaluation. Let me say what I mean by that. If you know there's a great player who you're unlikely to get, you might go to the head coach or the coaching staff and say, look, the probability of us getting this individual is low. We're pretty sure this person's above quality anyway. So I'll build on what you just said. Shouldn't you go to the coaching staff and tell them we should pay attention, more attention to evaluating people on the margin, people who could be good enough to play who we have a high likelihood? So won't your model, statistical model and algorithm, actually spill over to the evaluation process on who you should spend more effort on? When you take the next step, exactly, you're, you're exactly right. That's what happens. Now, you get the outlier. And so this is where, one, your, your data is only as good as what goes in, right? So, um, but we had an outlier in the class we just signed. We signed a young man out of Denton, Texas, you know, near Dallas there, named Ernest Brown. And Ernest Brown legitimately said no to Texas, Oklahoma, Michigan, people that typically, you know, wouldn't we don't win on Texas. We don't beat Texas in a recruiting battle like in Texas. Um, and that was the outlier in the class. Um, and the one thing you can't quantify is our defensive line coach, Marty Long, built a great relationship with that, that young man. And his mom, Angela, really trusted Coach Long. And, and at the end of the day, this was what he was looking for. So was it, now, when, now just that, to clarify, now, was he an outlier with respect outlier to, we to your models him. as well? Did you actually sort of predict that he had a higher chance of coming than sort of the, you know, the, just the usual historical the, Northwestern the versus Texas comparison? No, the data would show that we had about a 7% chance to get him. Wow. Um, and so, but we knew that going into it. Now, one of the things that happened was he made a verbal commit to us very early, March 22nd. And in our head, it's, you know, it's not signed. That's one of the strange things about college football recruiting. It's not binding. Is it a verbal commitment? I mean, it's what's It's not the... binding. So, so can you imagine if you're in sales and your customer looks at you in March and says, I'm going to buy a million dollars of your product, and they can't send a check or sign anything binding until the following February. Right. That's, I mean, in the outside world, that just sounds miserable in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> like, so, but what's the culture? So, what does it mean in, in college football for and, someone and to say they're coming? Place, and some, this changes some school to school, but one of the things we've tried to do is, and Coach Fitzgerald does a great job both painting this picture, is we've tried to say a verbal commitment is we are getting engaged, and we will get married on signing day. 
<laughs> and and if we're engaged, and, and those of us who have been, my wife, and when we were engaged, she did not want me dating other people. <laughs> so, which I didn't blame her, and I didn't want her dating other people. So we asked them not to take visits to other schools and, and go through that because that's dating. And likewise, we say we aren't going to give away your scholarship or, or take your position if we find someone better. And so we school, schools vary up. on this philosophy on both those dimensions. Yeah, that, this, that's a wide-ranging thing from school to school. So that's our culture. Through the entire 2017 signing class, we had one verbal commitment that two to three days after, a week after, decommitted, and, and that was fine. So one in a group of I don't, you know, however many yeah, that's low. we offered to the process was pretty good. That's but one low. of the things that happened with Ernest was he was verbally committed so early. It wasn't that we had to hold a scholarship for someone we weren't going to get. Because we had it once they verbally commit, we have a pretty good shot to get them. I mean, you would argue a great shot, you know, to get them. So, what does um, the probability go up to, by the way? You said 7% is kind of like the, the would be the baseline. Once, oh, or like how, of, of, of people right. who verbally commit, how many actually uh, turn that down? Yeah, in the our end? numbers on that, that are extraordinarily high. I mean, ninety yeah. plus percent. I mean, gotcha. You know, but not everyone's are that way. So but, I would I would guess the people who are the most likely not to come after they verbal committed are the ones who you're most unlikely to get in the first place. Uh, yes and no. Yeah, uh, yes, that's a fair statement. Typically, that happens where there's some late offer from another school that they feel they can't say no to. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, I'm very cute, con- uh, concerned about moms here. What is what is the role of mom? In the in the recruiting Profound. process, is there a mom variable in that? Because I mean, you said it was something about the mom felt very comfortable with your defensive coordinator, <laughs> so and I'm thinking, what what is the, what is the role here? Yeah, or Chris, and, and or analytics for moms. I mean, technically, have to be a mom, right? <laughs> right. It, well, what you would end up with is who's your key influencer? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that that's, that's the right way to phrase it. A young man's life, um, and so you try to build. You know, that's one of the things that how much can the model grow. And then again, but how accurate that information is there? So you have to be careful what you put in. And in this case, we had we had a mom who was the key influencer, who whose influence level was significant. You would argue extremely significant, right? Um, and you might end up in another place where the key influencer is someone's sister, but his dad is also an influencer. In what degree? So that's really hard to bear out. From a statistical standpoint. So, so Chris, and that's when you get into, you know, and this is kind of the literary part of it. You know, you have the, when you get into sports analytics, there's, you know, you go back to the statement Mark Twain made famous. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So you have to put in, we know there's data we can trust, but it has to be good data going in. And when you get something as subjective and qualitative as, as how influential is mom or dad or brother or co- high school coach, or former high school teammate who's on our roster, you know, um, you have to have a large enough sample size almost, and you have to have some way to make that quantitative, and that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, could you give us a sense of the kind of variables that are in your model and also just related? You um, you know, he had brought up about college admissions. How would this be any different than, let's say, Northwestern trying to predict of the students they accept who chooses to matriculate? Like, are these very similar? That's in- exactly. So that. Yeah. Of who Northwestern accepts, who matriculates, was exactly that kind of thinking, exactly what spawned this idea for Ben when he, he did, started to develop Z-Crew. That's exactly what he studied. So what kind of variables and, are in your model? Just give us a some sense. Some of the things I can't speak to on how he, you know, how he's doing it because it's his proprietary information, quite frankly, uh, in terms of 
things, but some of the things are pretty obvious you'd see. You know, um, let's start with the basic one. Who else has offered them a scholarship? Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. Right. You know? um, and you have to be careful in my shoes not to just, well, if school XYZ offer them, we usually win and get the kid in these schools offer them, we don't. Right. So then you end up kind of spinning your wheels and doing the same thing you've always done, getting the same level of player, beating the same schools, and you don't want to do that. You want to find other ways to influence a decision. Right. And hopefully then change data over time, right? Because it's, you know, it's a living and breathing thing. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. Um, so, yeah, Chris, some of it's who else offered. You have another thing that, that in our situation, and again, this, this could not be true to another school, but in our situation, um, when we offer in relation to other schools is significant. Um, so you, you have a variety of different factors. So you try to get in early as an advantage. Is this right? I would. Our data would say if we're earlier, we have a better chance. Okay. Now you have two factors on that. Is we there are schools that that would only use one that just off the top of my University of Kentucky in football. That will not. That data would not be as strong for them. This is just me on an anecdotal thing because they offer very early on a lot of people. They're extremely aggressive, right? Okay. Okay. Since they're the first offer on so many people, and they still only sign whatever you're going to sign twenty yeah, to twenty-five right. a year. Right. That that is going to be a less of a factor in theirs probably than in ours. Um, and then of course academically we have some background. We like to do as thorough job as we can character-wise. And the other thing we do, which this varies from program to program, we have we don't want to offer a scholarship with, without a complete intent that if that young man called us the next day and said I'm coming that we could honor it. Right, exactly. Now, at times, you have to communicate, like, you know, we've got eight corners offered. We just took a commitment from one. There's seven of you out there. We're taking one more. And we'll communicate that. Now, right. the other thing you have to understand is that young man also has a dozen, 15, 20, who knows how many other offers. So right. it's not like they don't have other options. But we never make the offer without the intent of being able to honor it. Mm-hmm. Now things change over it's, time, obviously. Yeah, it's it's tricky, and and some schools push that more than others. But we we understand that it's a tricky it's tricky on both sides. Chris, we've just got a few minutes left, and I wonder if you could give us a, a sense of the broader landscape in recruiting. There's there's a story out there that it's getting harder and harder in the Midwest, and that more and more resources are flowing to, especially the Southeast. You're positioned in the Midwest, and you're positioned as in in the Big Ten, of course. Are you seeing that dynamic? And how does a school like Northwestern, or even a or even a Ohio State or Michigan, how do you counterbalance that that broader macro trend? Yeah, at some point you end up with just a overall population situation, right? Um, and, and you can see that in the Big Ten, you know, TV contracts. Obviously, there's some things going on when you add Rutgers and Maryland and those things. And how does that spill over to recruiting? Um, you know, most of the schools will end up being recruiting at a national level. You know, um, and for us, Chicago is still Chicago. You know, this we're going to start and end our recruiting in Chicago, and everyone who fits us academically and character-wise who can play at this level in the state of Illinois, we're going to be really aggressive on. Okay. Beyond that, the fact of the matter is, the key states for us are Texas and Ohio. Now, Ohio is another Midwest state, but it's a Big Ten footprint state with significant population where there is good football and strong schools, and then obviously Texas is high population and football is football is football in Texas, right? Um, there's not been a, a shortage of discussion on the importance of the game of football in, in terms of the culture of the state of Texas. So do we go everywhere? Yes, but really those are the three. You have 
Illinois, Ohio, Texas, and every year, you know, we signed a kid from Southern California this year, but for us personally, quite frankly, the student athlete who is good enough to help us win football-wise in Southern California also has about half the Pac-12. Right. You know, and then a couple Big 12 schools, and now that's kind of a long flight. <laughs> and it's not like there's not other good schools there. So do you win that battle? Mm-hmm. On, and who do you win it on? And we had a starting linebacker last year who escaped out of Southern California without a Pac-12 offer who's a pretty solid player. But then you, at some point, your ability to out-evaluate everybody is, is that's a risky proposition. Right. At some point, you have to win a recruiting battle on somebody who everyone thinks is good enough. Right, right, so, right. Okay. Well, listen, Chris, we, we appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. Fascinating work that you're doing. I wish you the best with bringing more and more analytics to this business of recruiting high school players to Northwestern. Yeah, I appreciate it. Go Cats. Absolutely. Chris Bowers, Director of Player Personnel, Northwestern Football, with us talking about analytics going all the way down into the high school ranks. Interesting spin as well. Instead of trying to evaluate necessarily the best player, it's, it's the whether the player is going to accept the scholarship offer, which is an important issue for teams as they manage their scholarships all right that has been three quarters of wharton moneyball this morning we still have a quarter to go come back and join us after the break welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball rolling into the fourth and final quarter of the show Dion Simpkins picking us up as he always does at the bottom of the hour. Sound engineer. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies, Shane, Adi, Eric. The whole crew is here as some combination of us are every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics for two hours live from the Wharton School, 8 to 10 Eastern. You guys can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're up for your opinions questions comments whatever you got matt johnson our producer right there available just ring him you can also email us business radio at cirrusxm.com especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed we pick those things up during the week we also pick them up sometimes during the show guys uh we're just off the phone with chris bowers director of player personnel northwestern football bringing recruiting um bringing analytics to high school recruiting which is really interesting and a flip on it flip the question they're asking is is this player going to accept our offer? It's a very important decision as you decide who to invest time into. And ha- more importantly, how many people you invest time into depends on what your yield is going to be. It's actually an optimization problem. We didn't reflect it as that way. But, but essentially what you do is you have a finite number of offers that you can give. But you don't have a finite number. I mean, certainly you do have a finite, but you have a much larger number of, of offers that you can make. Yeah. So you, you can only have a certain what number you, of scholarships. I, it's, it's a fantastic optimization problem. It's the problem I asked us, Chris, about, which was it's a fantastic problem to decide how to spend your resources on who to evaluate. You know, the, the ones second that are, periods. Yeah, right, which piece. is the second part of it. It's it's really a – it's also that in combination – and Kate asked Chris's question. It's that in combination with how good do you think the player is. In some sense, I'd say simply you just multiply those two things together. Like what's the likelihood the person's going to be great? You multiply that by the probability you're going to get them. You get some sort of expected yield on greatness. I understand it's a little more complicated than that, but it's not really. Now you have two models, one that predicts performance, one that predicts matriculation, if you'd like. 
and you've got something. Well, except you can't build a team. Like, like let's say, for example, whatever the regional dynamics are such that you can you end up with like ten amazing wide receivers and no quarterback. Now, I mean, it is more. Con- you have the opti- there's a lot of constraints so, so in that optimization. I want to ask you. I want to ask Massey Peabody a question. I've been watching Northwestern since we started this this show two and a half years ago, yeah. and Massey Peabody has consistently underpredicted Northwestern. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether this recruiting model might have something to do with it. Is it completely out of the out of the just a crazy question? I mean, because you use recruiting class quality, I don't know how it works, but yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how this has translated into their recruiting success. That would be an interesting question to go look at the recruiting rankings and see what has happened since Fitzgerald's been. We have some facts there. on that, right? I mean, they, um, they, 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 these last great. two years have been good. I mean, they've they've been they've that's, had decent that's... seasons, and they and they have not been ranked to have good seasons. Well, well listen, the they're not top 10, the but they're, but... You're, you're really talking about 2015. I remember this right. was like a big thing for you in 2015 because they were outperforming everybody's, all the analytics takes on their ability. But, you know, it's one of these things. It's this funny thing about sports. You, you, there's no settling up in the end. I mean, there's no, we're not, truth is not revealed in the end. We no. don't know whether the Giants were actually any good in 2011, was it? Was that a good team? They won the damn Super Bowl, but we still don't That's think right. they were any good. <laughs> yeah, so right. I, I, I stand by my short of Northwestern in 2015, strongly. Um, and I, I, I think it's probably independent of – certainly it's going to take years for any edge that they're getting in this recruiting model to accumulate into something on the field. Something that I kind of like, I mean, I guess I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but like this conversation, like kind of, you know, brought to the forefront is just how regional recruiting really is. Phenomenally. You know, right. that, yeah. that like, and I mean, you don't really, th- you know, Northwestern must be, you know, they're doing all they can, but they must be at a huge disadvantage not being basically in the South. Right. right? But it's offset a little bit, as yep. you said, by being in Chicago. Yes. That's and, right. And, but it's interesting. Schools get these little pipelines into other places. So the fact that they're Texas is a big thing is not yeah. obvious. You wouldn't have come up with that for those guys. Yeah. Okay, changing gears, guys. Did anybody, Matt Matt reminded us last night, did anybody pay any attention to the Westminster Dog Show? This is like an annual conversation for us. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun to watch, but it's also appalling in a sense for an analyst because the judging in these shows, is, it's, it's, it's the... It's the most extreme in terms of subjective and arbitrary Absolutely. that yeah. we observe in any other sport. It's, it's not just a panel of judges writing down scores. It's one judge. We had a judge on one year. I came yes. to the conclusion that it is incredibly careful and principled, the judging. Like, I, I believe that that judge really brings a lot of subject domain knowledge to bear. Yes. But it's not something that's, I guess, analytically <laughs> interesting in that it's not. It's it's not. It's there's, not no, there's, no, there's no prediction. Well, let me there's just say one thing prediction. you could do. Just relating this to Peter Keating, who was on, you could try to take measurements of the dogs and just try to. If you want to do something analytically, yeah. you could take measurements of the dogs and try to say, just like the who the bachelor pits picks is subjective in some ways. Who does the judge pick as a function of the measurements of the dogs? In other words, some ratios are more appealing than others visually. Yeah. You could absolutely do that analysis, and my guess is they have people have done that analysis. In other words, what's the likely proportion of a dog that's likely to make it a beautiful golden terrier yeah. or etc.? I imagine those things exist, and whether they've been formally done by the judges, yeah. I have to believe informally Somewhere that it is done. It right. is. It is in there. An, an interesting question is how much um, judge heterogeneity there is. Yeah, exactly. It feels like there's judge a lot. Pro- like you'd want a giant breed by judge matrix where you kind of were looking at <laughs> no, like no, the proportion. No, you're right. 
Or you, you want know. people who have expertise in a particular yeah. breed because it's really hard to be an expert in all of them. So I can tell you, I mean, this this happens One not presumes. just. Let me take it out to the country, fellas. The, in livestock shows, the same thing happens. So these got I have nephews who show hogs out in West Texas, and they their success depends heavily on who the judge is that day. Yeah, and they and some they enter some contests and not others because some contests like local boys and they do better in those things. It's, but it's just it's maddening in its arbitrariness. Now this is just like court cases. You shop judges. You shop districts. You shop, you shop juries. You shop juries. Good point. This is all part of the same So let's, pile. let's just give some credit to the winner last night. Rumor, there's a five-year-old German Shepherd run, won last night. Oh. And uh, this was from the herding category. So they had these different categories. I, I watched an hour, but I watched the the, the sporting category. It was <laughs> great fun. You, in between the episodes of The Bachelor. I, exactly. <laughs> While I was catching up, I, I get no most children. of my Bachelor information secondhand, by the way. But I, it, it, it does pull you in eventually. Just the silliness of it, if nothing else. But... Um, um, this was the second win by a German Shepherd. Is the herding category not usually the category that... Um, this is the the, cause I the assume second the, win by the entire herding category, I think. Wow. So I think we talked about the terriers being yeah, the kind of the... Yeah, I would have thought you'd get a border collie in there or something like that occasionally. A, a border, what? A border <laughs> what? 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 Is border this a Coley. falcon? <laughs> Every now and then, you know, everybody, I mean, you guys, all, all the listeners are like, yeah, he's pronouncing it correctly. They're going to start yeah. calling in and like, you know, calling you guys out for calling me out. Because that's just yeah, like, our, 14, our 14 listeners in Calgary agree with you. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> I have a huge a following. Board of huge following in Western What's Canada. What's in a boat, huh? Huge. Huge. Okay. Eric suggested... I want to hear what he has to say about this because I'm, I love the sport. I love the event, but I didn't expect to be talking about it in February. Eric wants to talk about the Masters. Let's hear about the Masters. Uh, Tiger Woods is not going to make it. But That's wh- all I know about the Masters Yeah, right it's now. unlikely. Actually, I'm, I'm staring right here. So Jordan Spieth just won uh, he's good, huh? a tournament this last week, the AT&T Pro-Am. And he's now the favorite. He probably would have been anyway. I mean, he's played in three Masters. He's come in second, first, and second. Can we can we take a moment on Jordan Spieth? Spieth, there have been four tournaments in 2017, or at least he's played four. Correct. He he's, just won this past week. But he's been in the top ten in every one. Right. He's got two-thirds. He just won two other thirds and a nine Correct. in his four tournaments. It's a phenomenal wow. start. He's, he's off to a phenomenal start of the year. He's the favorite in the Masters. Uh, he's eight to one at mm-hmm. the moment to win the Masters. Actually, what I was trying to do is this relates actually to your business partner, Rufus Peabody, how far down would you have to go so that you might be 50-50? Like, I'll take those players, and you can have the rest of the field. So here are the top 10 players. How small a group and who would they be? Mm -hmm. Here are the top 10 players listed right now in their odds for the Masters. So we have Jordan Spieth at 8-1. to We have Jason Day, who's the number one player in the world right now, at 8.5-1. to We have Rory McIlroy, who's also at 8.5-1. to We have Dustin Johnson. At eleven to one, we have Hideki Matsuyama at twelve to one, hmm. Adam Scott at twenty to one, and Bubba Watson at twenty to one, and Justin yeah, Rose at twenty-one to one. Those are the top ten, right? Yeah, those there. make fifty percent. Right okay, there. so up through where? Up through uh, Adam, one back, and you're up. You're up, up over. through Adams or Bubba Watson. Yeah. Okay, so if I gave you Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, McElroy, Dustin Johnson, Matsuyama, Scott, and Watson, <laughs> would you take those one, two, three, eight, seven players? The odds are. Saying, I would, I would yes. take a couple less. Than that, just because I assume Vegas is spreading out the yeah, odds their, a little make, bit more than they really actually more right, to the yeah. extent that it, they reflect true probabilities. The true probabilities are probably clustered a little bit more at the top than the Vegas odds are. So you would take those seven, and you'd give me the other whatever hundred players. Yeah, in the I field. might even take the top six. 
as opposed to those seven. You're just trying to do something that's fair. So you're trying yeah. to get down to objective. I'm trying 50%. to get to the. Yeah, you're trying that's to get right. rid of the vig. Like, like if you tell me that, right. like you know, the top seven and add up to fifty percent of the probability based on Vegas odds, I actually think that you know because you, you, the Vegas you, you, odds yeah. are going to be spread a little disproportionately towards the low odds. No, no, no. They put no? on the higher, and then you got it reverse because they, they're paying you. They're paying you eight to. If they're paying you eight to one, then they actually think his probability is actually is. Uh, I just is, I, lo- is uh, lower than. I, is, I, I just think that yeah. there, there must be a. T- a a whole ton of players that have like essentially no shot, but that Vegas still puts has to assign some gives, of their it probability gives them bigger too. probablilities than they have. Right, they're so, taking eight to one. They so they're taking those probability yeah, away right. from the true probability of the top guys. So the true probability of the top guys so is actually a, a little bit larger. Group. It's a small group. So you're saying it's an even smaller group. Yeah, that's yeah. The, yeah that's right. Yeah, it's probably so right. I tell, you know, if you tell me the top seven have 50% of the Vegas probability, I, I'll take the top six. The, 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 the claim, the hypothesis I would have is that, that people would accept a smaller set than they should. Yes. You start reading that list and you think, oh, yeah, God, a winner's I mean, definitely, I mean, definitely I'm, coming from that yeah, list. I'm, I'm evidence of your statement right, the, right, right now. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but you're doing it for objective reasons. Yeah, you know, but your VIG is like smaller so. than you think. The VIG yeah. is smaller. It would just cut off one name at the end. Which is what I did, yeah. So, but but I think your point, Kate's point, is that it is that the it, psychology it, of it, it feels you, like you yeah. to it feels like a much better bet. three or four well, and instead of going all the way down to six or seven. Let's let's do it again. Here's the exercise, Eric. Read read the list and shave one off of the odds that add up to fifty. So whatever Audi thought before, shave one following Shane's advice because we want to cut the vig out of it. So what we're giving you is a list that right now, set, objectively, is fifty percent likely to provide the winner of the Masters. What's right. that list again? Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Hideki Matsuyama, Adam Scott. Those are the top six right there. If you ask the average golf fan, what per- what likelihood do you think the winner is to come from that set? What do you think they'd say? 75% easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah over 50%. Yeah. Oh, certainly over 50 And like I that. would take the field. You would take. The I would field. take the, against those six. I would probably take the field. Well, just yeah, because, because you're, you're, yeah. no, I'm looking historically. Golf. I'm also looking historically at if I look over the last ten years, how many times the winner, for example, last year. I mean, I understand Jordan Spieth collapsed on the twelfth hole, but Danny Willett won the Masters. By the way, he's currently. <laughs> this is strange to show you how the odds work. He's at sixty-five to one. It's fine. He's the defending champion. That's fine. Tiger Woods is listed with a higher odds. And Ty- Danny Willett. Gonna play. You mean better odds? 60 to 1. 60, yeah. Lower odds. Um, yeah, 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 lower that, odds. That's just because people, like probability. Tiger, people like Tiger Woods. But I just want to say, Zach Johnson, who's won two Masters, he won three years ago. He's in my... I get, I get him, which is fine. I get Phil Mickelson. That's fine. I get Heinrich Stenson, Justin Rose, Patrick Reed, it's Ricky Fowler. It's not the Fowler. individuals, though, Eric. It's the, it's the full list is what you get. No, I'm just saying, but I also exception. get... No, no, but I'm trying to make a point that... The individuals yeah, who are Nichols, just yeah. outside of Jack Nicholas is not playing anymore. <laughs> he has the honorary shot. <laughs> but he doesn't still No, oh, but I, I get Fred Couples. Yeah, oh, nice, <laughs> nice. I get Fred Couples. But my point is the six you picked are definitely better than the next six. There's no question about mm, it. No doubt. But they're not that much better. And then I get yes, thirteen but, through a hundred. They're but, not that much better. Eric, now you're very sure of the yeah, they side. Are. The market is saying they're they're equally balanced. No, the mar- no. The first the second the, the seven through through twelve are much weaker than one through six. I know, but he's you're, saying seven through one hundred and fifty. Seven. That's where you're gaining. The fact that you're going seven to one hundred and fifty, that without exception, without hole, is where you get your probability. Well, what actually in in recent history, Eric would be the only one probably that answers. What's the lowest ranked player that's won the Masters? Well, Danny Willett last yeah, year won the Masters and was way outside the top hundred. Okay, 
All right. Guys, I want to talk a little bit about basketball before we leave. The, there have the, been some trades? What do you want to talk about? Well, there have been professional some basketball or? Yeah, because we're, we're, we, we need to, we're going to roll into the tournament here. We've t- we got, we got to kill time until uh, uh, spring training There's starts. been all-star <laughs> selections for basketball? Yeah, February's the dead month, right? No, no well, I mean, it's not honor, dead. There is this it's great, just less there's, than there's horse most racing. of the month. Oh, my Hold goodness, on. Really? <laughs> there's this phrase we have is to there? honor. There's this phrase we have to honor. Even me, as a non-baseball guy, has to stop and honor this phrase. What's the phrase I'm talking about? Relevant this week. Best best four words in English language. Go ahead. Pitchers, catchers, pitchers and catchers report. Yeah, pitchers and catchers <laughs> report. That happened Monday. That's a I magic. thought you were going to do those four words out of order there for a second. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I pitchers, just catchers, and. He's a status report, and. Status <laughs> yeah, I'm Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> what you report, re- what pitchers you- and catchers. <laughs> I tried to give you a moment. I, yeah. I really, really tried to give you a moment. I had to do it. Okay, so, that's, yeah. that's our baseball coverage for the week. We're moving on to the NBA now. There was a great article in The Ringer. So the, the Ringer is Bill Simmons' on site, and they've got some great writing across sports, and there's an article by Jonathan Tarks. I'm sorry, Jonathan, maybe pronouncing your last name wrong, but it's a phenomenal take on point guards of the NBA yeah. right now. Trying to evaluate. Great article. His, the premise is it's a great time for point guards in the NBA, and you know, as many basketball fans feel, you know, the, watching a great point guard is a very satisfying basketball experience. I mean, it makes a big difference, and there are a bunch of great ones right now. So Tarks tries to, and I really am sorry, I don't know how to pronounce Jonathan's name, T-J-A-R-K-S. Again, this is off of the ringer. But he breaks down these top eight point guards on a few different dimensions, trying to bring some advanced analytics. So it's Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, Kimba Walker, James Harden, Steph Curry, John Wall, Isaiah Thomas, Kyrie Irving, and Russell Westbrook. Did you guys have a look at this article? Yeah, and I, I really liked kind of like because he, I, I think he really does. I mean, because essentially, as, as I understand, and again, I'm going to make an analogy to another sport. You know, the point guard is becoming even more the kind of quarterback of of, of an offense, right? And so, you know, it, it's it's you have to kind of try and evaluate them not just on their own skills, their shooting and passing skills and how well they drive to the basket, but also how they manage the game. Essentially, you know, like whether they're finding the the right kind of Open, open player and stuff like that, and I think he does a good job of trying to balance all those, t- evaluate all those right. things, even though some of them are inherently a little bit more subjective than others. Well, right. one of the nice things, or harder to quantify. One of the nice things is now that we have advanced analytics and measurement, we can know. For example, we can say, look, point guard A doesn't even have the ball as much as point guard yeah. B. Yeah. So right. all of us, and I yeah. know that was in the article. So now all of a sudden we can't say, well, B has better stats. Well, of course B has better stats because well, B has the ball twice make, as yeah. much as A. Well, let's make this very concrete. That's the first that he looks at is right. t- touches per game. So with, with player tracking that we have now, you can see touches per game. So even in these eight point guards, who are he's claiming the best eight in the league, there's a range from 80 touches per game, that's Kyrie Irving, who of course plays with uh, the big man, LeBron, to 100 a game by James Harden. So 25% more touches mm-hmm. for Harden than for Irving. So that's an, it's important to consider. And then what, what he does with it is he says, okay, of those touches... What percentage um, are passes? So how much is this guy distributing the ball versus basically taking shots? And those percentages vary, again, pretty dramatically from the low 50s. So so Irv, so Kyrie Irving doesn't get that many touches, but when he does get it, he doesn't pass that much. He's kind of a, he's, he's from he and Steph Curry are most likely to shoot. They're like low 50s, and then you have a guy like Chris Paul, who's more and James Harden. These guys are passing the ball almost two thirds of the time when they touch. Now, of course, the ironic part about it is what was Harden? 
criticized for in most of his career was, you know, the guy, the ball's the black oh, hole of death yeah, the minute it yeah. gets to James Harden. But actually, I think the reason why Houston's record is better this year, and even his teammates say this as well, is he's actually passing the mm-hmm. ball a lot more. Now, Chris Paul has historically been, if you look at his, whatever, eight, nine, ten years in the league, he's thought of as the best passing point guard in the league. So this is a really, I love the way the article does that. It says, you t- how many times do you touch it? Yeah. And then given you touch the ball, how often do you pass versus shoot? Right. These are, it's, it's, I like the sequence of thoughts because it is the right. right sequence to think about it. Right. So they, they do a number of other interesting things here, but one of the other ones that caught my eye, and he uses this term Mori Ball. So Mori Ball is yeah, named after Daryl Mori. Daryl Mori, the general manager in Houston, um, playing obviously on Moneyball. But the, the Mori Ball, people talk about, and in fact, Jeff Ma was on our show last week, and we asked him, where has the greatest impact of analytics been felt in sports? And he said, basketball, basically. With NBA, the change in the game toward with recognizing that the high value shots are basically three point shots and short as uh, shots at the at the rim, so getting a, away from these mid range twos, yeah, and and Maury is the one Maury and the Rockets really push that. I mean, dramatically. I like that we have the Maury Ball like phrase for that rather complicated yeah. concept exactly. as Let's opposed to saying Ball. avoiding <laughs> long twos. Basically, recognizing a three is bigger than two. Well, well, no, because it's, it's all, it's, and that if you are going to do two, make sure it's a very, uh, it's almost yeah, guaranteed no, shot. No, Three times, obviously, two the times expected value, expected value. Uh, is, so it's, it's, that's a, right. it's it has to be, you have to hit well, that I mean, with the probability. If you look at it before we thought about it analytically, we, I think that if you go back in time, three point shots have been along around, around, along, been around for a long time. People didn't think they could make them at the rate that they're making them. Well, they didn't make them at the rate. Yeah. They well, they did. Well, that's, the they didn't make them, and they didn't think they could train themselves to make them. Right. And so that's why the calculation of three times the low probability was just not the same as two times the high probability. And, but this is an interesting feature of sports where something that might have been true in the past affects the culture and conventional mm-hmm. wisdom. And because sports decision-making is so often influenced by culture and conventional wisdom, it doesn't change, And yeah. despite the fact that the game is changing. So it takes someone like Daryl Moore to come in from you know, yeah. consulting and say, hey, guys, how about look at the numbers? And the numbers say, no more mid-range twos. And right. then he had to beat his coach over the head with the stats. They had to say, we're going to rank you against every other team in the league every night by how few two point mid-range, mid-range two-point shots you take to get it through. And it started changing the and league. And it's an exciting time to sort of, I mean, I've been a casual fan of basketball, and maybe I'll become less casual, because it's an exciting time to watch basketball and sort of see this sport in transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Counterbalance with that, with the fact that the same two teams are going to be the finals every year. Yeah, other than that. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it, it still doesn't make boring. it like, in, a, in, a, in an outcome sense, it doesn't make basketball more exciting to me, but in a process sense, it does. So, I mean, the basic math to me now is 1.2 is the math, which is the best player shoot around 60% near the rim, multiply it by two points, 1.2. The best players shoot about 40% from threes, some a little better, times three is 1.2. So 1.2 is the new norm. People didn't used to shoot over 40%. It was rare when someone shot over 40% from threes. The players are getting more athletic, which is making it harder even near the rim to make 60%. If you look at, I've looked at this just recently, the historical best field goal percentages in the league, top 10 players is going down. It's much harder to score even near the basket because of the athletic 
athleticism of all the players. So the mid-range game is not only dead, but you're going to start to see even the five-foot and in-game start to go down because it's really hard to score even near the hoop now. Well, of course, it has to go somewhere, and this is the game-theoretic equilibrium exactly. solution. Yeah. That mid-range game will come back a little bit. So the, prob- the, the expected value out of those shots will it's go up. The number still 1.2 now. It's yeah. 1.2. one step back, and you get 50% more Clear, points. Clearly, but there, exactly. there, there is a shift. You, have, you respond to defense, of course, and as the defense allocates more resources to defending the perimeter against threes and the rim against those rim those rim easy rim shots, then that opens Anyway, up a you can bit. get but to space, 1.2, I, you take it. It's nice. Space it's nice. goes like the square. It's hard to defend. So, by, by the way, the, the, the article looks at how often these point guards take shots, either from the three-point arc or at the rim. So what percentage of their shots come from one of those two spots? And they range dramatically. So Chris Paul is as low as 50%. Only half of his shots are from these 1.2 areas that Eric's talking about, all the way up to Isaiah Thomas, the um, Boston Celtics guard who's having such a good year. He's at 80%. So it's a, he's, he's playing Maury Ball basically four times out of five that he has the ball. Or, uh, that, he, that he takes That's the shot great. away. All right, guys. Uh, so in the next, we've got just in about 30 seconds. What are you paying attention to in sports right now? It is February. What 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 has your eye? Uh, I'm watching the Super Bowl over and over again still <laughs> for probably the next couple of weeks. I'm watching injuries because the Cavs just had Kevin Love is out. I'm watching injuries, and that's going to be a big determinant. Adi, how do you consume pitchers and catchers? I'm actually going to try to go down to, to Florida. Wow. That might be a, that might be in the cards this year. We'll see. That, that sounds like fun. Of course we went a, last year, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. And I recommend spring football just around the corner. <laughs> this, this has been another Wharton Moneyball. We're here, we're here every Wednesday doing the show live for a couple of hours, eight to ten Eastern. This has been the full crew. Thanks from Cade Massey for my buddies Eric, Adi, Shane. Thanks to Dion Simpkins holding the, down the soundboard as usual, and Maddie J, our producer, for bringing this whole thing together. Come back and join us next week. Until then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>